Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go to www.dicetower.com to find a host of resources for board gamers. Uh, there's something for everybody there, whether it's the latest, greatest review or another podcast in the network. There's something for everyone at dicetower.com. The Long View is also proudly sponsored by gamesurplus.com. Gamesurplus.com is your first and best choice for any online gaming purchases. Whether it's something that's out of print or hard to find, whether it's a new import or the latest greatest hotness, Thor and his family will do their level best to find it for you, give it to you at an unbeatable price, and ship it to you super fast. That's Gamesurplus.com. And if you order from them, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. I'd also like to give a special recommendation for my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. The Gamer's Edge is conveniently located off of Route 80, uh, Interstate 80 in northeastern Pennsylvania and very close to northern New Jersey. They have tons of board games and lots and lots of card games, whether it be Magic or Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh! They have a huge variety of new and used video games, as well as video game areas for players to come in and play their own games or check out something new there right in the store. Gamer's Edge has lots of table space and a friendly and knowledgeable staff. That's the Gamer's Edge on Main Street in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Stop by if you're in the neighborhood. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very pleased to be joined by none other than Mark Johnson of Board Games To Go. Uh, Mark has a uh, podcast that I've been listening to for years uh, and have really enjoyed it. Um, I, I, I enjoy the depth of the discussion and the, the, and the guests he has on and uh, the opinions that he shares, which are always very thoughtful. And so I was very happy when uh, I saw very early on in my podcasting uh, a career, if you want to call it that, uh, that Mark had actually signed up to my guild. And I was like, "Woo, look, you know, <laughs> Mark's on my guild. I was very excited. And uh, you been kind enough to uh, chime in from time to time and write in and we've always kind of toyed with the idea of maybe doing an episode about your favorite game Entecker and so I was glad that we finally are going to have the chance to do that so Mark I want to say welcome thank you very much for uh, agreeing to be on the show tonight well thanks for having me Jeff I really enjoy listening to your podcast as well well, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm, uh, I'm very flattered by that um, because uh, I'm relatively new to the game here. And so uh, it's great to hear that uh, you enjoy the show. So, um, so Mark, uh, just for people out there who might not be familiar with you or your work, I, I doubt it, but you know, maybe there's a few out there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your podcast and what you do and where we can find you? Okay. So like you said, I've got my own podcast, Board Games To Go. It's it's probably it, – it's, it's got maybe two claims to fame. One is that it's been around forever, and then the other is that it's a, a very minimalist. It's not fancy. <laughs> it doesn't have much music or anything like that. It's really – I described it as more of an audio blog rather than a show, even though I sometimes call it a show too, where it's just a chance for me because it kind of grew out of a blog I used to have, you know, a chance for me to just kind of talk about, in this case literally, unlike a blog, um, some stuff I'm playing. So I've been running that podcast since – uh, spring of 2005. Oh my gosh. You know, so that makes it, we're coming up on my nine year anniversary. Fantastic. Um, and in the beginning I was doing shows pretty frequently and then it tapered off and it's gotten extremely irregular, but, um, but I still keep chugging away at it. And, uh, um, and I'm really excited to talk about Ent Decker. It's funny. I actually have 
uh, a type of episode that I do once in a blue moon now called an all about episode where I would talk all about just one particular game. And, um, it's it, in a little ways in a little bit, it's kind of like what, what you do to great effect on the, on the long view. Um, but you've been at it, uh, much more consistently than I ever was. And the very first one I ever did was Ent Decker. Um, but I did it as a solo show. Since then, I've been doing all these all, these all about shows with another voice. So it's really nice to get to talk about it. And it's not exactly like too much of a repeat because I went back and looked. It was this was my 24th episode back in June of 2005. So it's probably okay to talk about it again on uh, on your show. Absolutely, and I look forward to it, uh, and, and especially to learning a little bit more about this game because my experience with Entecker. Uh, is actually with the uh, newer version, which is Entecker Exploring New Horizons. and Yeah, the, the, that's the wrong one. As far exactly. As that's what I've been hearing. So I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to talk with someone who actually uh, you know, knows the original game and can talk about both of them and, and uh, you know, both editions and the differences between them and, and things of that nature. And, you know, I, I remember when I first kind of talked to you about this uh, through uh, Geek Mail, you were kind of like, ah, no one's going to want to hear about Entecker. And I'm like, no, no, you know, that's that's kind of what we try to do is look at these games that have been around for a while. And I mean, the pedigree of this game is is rather impressive. I mean, here we have uh, Klaus uh, Tuber. I believe it's Tuber, not Toiber. Uh, I don't okay. see the umlaut there uh, I, over the U, so I'm assuming it's Tuber. Um, and of course, you know, he's most famous for uh, Settlers. You know, this is this is the, the big bang of sort of German modern gaming uh, that sort of set off everything else. You know, that's that's the first pebble in the pond, as it were. And uh, then we have this game and and all of uh, and all of you know the other games that have come since then uh, from him, and of course other designers. And so he's a very important designer, I think, to look at. And I have not yet done an episode about settlers. I've kind of got one lined up with. Uh, uh, Eric Brocious and uh, Joe Huber. Um, but, you know, this is one of those games that I think people might overlook a little bit. Um, it has been out of print, I think, in its original form, the one we're going to spend most of our time talking about for quite some time. And, uh, you know, now it's kind of like the, the New Horizons is the one that's available. Um, that's the one that I had. And yet I hear that it's not really as good. And, and there's a lot of changes that were made. So I'm really looking forward to talk with you about this tonight and appreciate you taking the time. Oh, yeah. appreciate the opportunity. Like I said, it is my favorite game. It's been that way for a long time. And um, I'm happy to talk about it. I, I do realize, though, it has that oddity that we're going to talk about a game that's probably pr- – kind of difficult for people to lay their hands on because it, like you say, it never got an English edition until this substantial revision. But the one I like is, is, is notably different. And, um, so I never got an English edition, never really got a good distribution in America. And then even if you're living over in Germany, it's been out of print for a long time, but like a lot of older out of print games, uh, you know, as long as there isn't thousands of people rushing for it, and I know there won't be, you know, the few people that are really eager to get it, you know, through the used market, through BGG, on eBay, things like that, um, you, can, you can track it down. 
Absolutely. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing about it because I had the New Horizons one. And after a while, it kind of it left me a little flat for some reasons that I'll, I'll talk with you about later. So I'm going to be curious whether you're going to put the itch there uh, for me to go and try and track down a copy of this myself. Hopefully not at too great of expense. Um, but, you know, uh, Mark, before we begin tonight, I, I have this little thing that I do from time to time um, on my episodes. I've slowed down a little bit recently uh, because I've been going way, way, way back in the Wayback Machine. Uh, and we're going to uh, we, we take a look at like a year in board gaming. And so if it's okay with you, I think I'd like to take a little stroll down the year 1990 with you. Are you up for that? Yeah, let's go for it. That's really reaching back. (laughs) All right, here we go. Take a step back in time and join us as we look at a year in board gaming here on The Long View. So, Mark, uh, taking a look, doing a a sort of a standard BGG advanced search here for the games just released in the year 1990, uh, I see a few titles that I am familiar with and quite a few that I'm not. (laughs) And, uh, you know, starting off the list here, we have a game called uh, The Republic of Rome, which is ranked 169. Um, and, and this is a, one of the, the kind of big older games, kind of like uh, the, the, the heavy strategy games. I never actually had a chance to play this one. Um, I've seen it. I've seen it being played at the WBC in Lancaster, uh, where you'll see a lot of these great old games being played. But I haven't had the opportunity to play that one myself. Is that one that you're familiar with at all, or is that passed you by as well? Well, I've never played it, so but I know a little bit about it mostly through reputation. It's one of those kind of legendary multiplayer war games and by legend i mean like you said we're going back to 1990 so this isn't this isn't the current crop of of war games and it's got a fantastic reputation and you know because it's as long as involved as it is if people know me they know that's probably not something i would be that interested in (laughs) and that probably has what's kept me away but it but you know one of these days, and I had a chance once, and it just sort of evaporated away. One of these days, when I'm at you know an all day Saturday sort of thing, um, you know it's rated for 300 minutes, but I have a feeling this is kind of an all day experience. Um, it's it's kind of a, a one timer thing I would like to do. There's a number of games I've played that are sort of like I just do it one time and that's enough. This is on that sort of bucket list for the future. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I mean, there's there's games like this. Uh, you know, I, I would almost put games like TI3, which I don't get the opportunity to play, but once in a blue moon or a full game of Advanced Civilization with, you know, six or seven players. Uh, and, and this is one that I would definitely like to try. So uh, it sounds like it's on both of our uh, bucket lists, and uh, uh, hopefully one of us will get the chance to play it sometime soon. <laughs> so um, looking down the list here, the next one that really jumps out at me is Hoity Toity. Um, Hoity Toity came out uh, in that year, 1990. Um, This is, again, a Klaus Tuber game. Um, this is one that's for two to six, very lighthearted. You know, this is, this is kind of a a fun game. It's been sort of redone many, many times. Um, you know, this is a a Spiel des Jahres winner. Um, you know, the game has been, I think, in print, uh, in some incarnation or another for quite some time. Although I think now it's, it's getting really, really hard to find. Um, is this a game that you've had a chance to play? Yeah, this one, finally we've hit one now that I've uh, played. 
Um, and I was really surprised when, I mean, I know the game for sure. I was surprised it came out in 1990 because the first place I saw it was almost around that time frame. And I would have guessed it was older, just, I don't know exactly why, but, um, uh, this is one of those games that, uh, of course now we're used to all sorts of publishers, Z-Man and Mayfair and Rio Grande and all those sort of that bring over games from overseas. But, you know, not everyone remembers that Avalon Hill was really great at this too. Um, uh, not quite in the big numbers that we've done now, but but someone over there, I don't know if it was Don Greenwood or whoever it was, was or Bruce Shelley or someone, was good at hearing what was exciting over in Europe and bringing the occasional game over here. You mentioned Advanced Civ. That's certainly another good example of that. So, you know, when this thing came out and showed up in game stores and had the unbelievably hard-to-pronounce German name Adele Verplichtet is that mm-hmm. how it goes Something I like think that. so yeah and um and then uh and then I think they changed it to by hook or crook in the uh Avalon Hill edition so I saw that and that would have been I mean I guess I saw it about when it came out now that was in the early 90s and I was that's probably my uh actually that's even predating my Magic the Gathering because uh by a little bit but um so I didn't play it until I got into you know Euro style games in the mid 90s um, and this was one of those ones that, you know, when you, when you, when you entered the hobby at around 96 or something like me, the catalog was a lot thinner than it is right now. Oh, yeah. and, um, and reached back, uh, into the earlier years and there were individual titles that sprung up and this was one of them. So I'd heard fantastic things about this. Now, when I actually played it, <laughs> I wasn't really blown away. I didn't really like it that much. It's got, um, you know, this art, uh, I guess art thief kind of theme. Um, at least that's part of it. Um, and the name hoity toity that Uberplay gave kind of gives a sense of this sort of aristocratic th- theming that's going on in there. But it's it's got this simultaneous bidding, doesn't it? That's what I recall. It's the simultaneous right. bidding and bluffing, and um, and uh, it's just not my kind of thing. I did play it again not that long ago, within the last year, because a friend of mine, um, uh, actually Jeff Myers, who runs the Game Guy Thinks blog, he's going through a series of playing all the Spiel des Jahres winners. And uh, so this was on the list, and I thought, okay, I'll give this another try. And uh, just like last time, it seemed like (laughs) everyone kind of liked it, and I was like the one outlier who thought, you know, there's nothing really wrong with it, but it's just, it leaves me a little cold. Yeah, yeah, and and I, you know, I've only played it once, so I don't really have any, uh, I can't speak authoritatively about it at all, but it wasn't one of those that I played and was like, ah, I gotta have this, you know, there, there are certain games that are, that are older, that as soon as I played them, I really wanted, you know, I think about games like El Grande and, and things like that. I'm like, ah, you know, I, I gotta have this game. You know, I, I, I have to, um, it was a revelation for me, uh, in many ways when I first played it, but hoity toity was just kind of like, eh, you know, it, it, it was fun. And, um, I, I kind of, you know, when I looked at the, the sort of Uber play line, um, that I was acquiring like very rapidly, especially through Tango. <laughs> Back when <laughs> Tango used to have buy a crate of Nottingham for ten dollars, you know, or <laughs> whatever it was, and you know, I, I would much rather play for sale, you know, or or, or something like that. It just wasn't something that uh, was up my alley. But you know, again, uh, you know, here's here's another game um, from the same designer. And uh, I, I really did kind of when I was thinking about the show, I was thinking about sort of the the variety of the designs that he that he has done. And that's mm-hmm. something that I respect because there's a lot of designers that I like. 
Uh, I am a Stefan Feld fan, and and I admit that. But you know, mm-hmm. a lot of Stefan Feld's uh, games, you make it sound like a bad thing, Jeff. Um, it's, yes, I'm a Stefan Feld fan. It's like I'm going in a twelve step program. Um, but he's. A lot of his games kind of uh, have sort of similar kind of feels to them in that sort of point salad sort of thing that he's been doing recently. Um, although I think Rialto is a bit of a throwback. Um, I, I love Matt Gertz, you know, but he's got the Rondell thing, you know, that that's sure. like his thing. And it seems like, you know, when I look at these uh, uh, Klaus uh, Tuber games, there, there's a decent amount of variety here. You know, he's, he's exploring some different areas. So for that, at least, I really kind of like the design. Um, but it, it, you know, I shouldn't say I like it. I, I more like respect the idea that he, he kind of has done a lot of different kind of feel of games to me. Because uh, the, the Anzacker I'm familiar with is very different from this game, which is different in my mind by a mile uh, from Settlers. And so, you know, the, there's there's a, a breadth here to the work that I kind of appreciate. Um, yep. Moving on to uh, past a couple games that I have never heard of before. Um, I have heard of Euro Rails. Now, I have not played that, but you mentioned to me in some pre-recording uh, geek mails that this was a game that you were familiar with, Yes. Sure. Have you played none of the Crayon Rail games? No, I have not because I'm some sort of strange, snobbish person that can't stand uh. like writing on things, Mark. I, I got myself finally <laughs> a copy of Atlantic Star, and uh, I was going to give that a shot. And I'm like, oh my god, I have to write on it with crayons. <laughs> There's like something in me that just really resists it. I'm like, no. it's I, I, I have like almost all, thank goodness, uh, after years and years of trying, of the, uh, um, oh gosh, come on, what's the publisher? Antiquity, uh, Greed, uh, Great oh, Zimbabwe, Splatter. Yeah, I have like almost all the Splatter games. But like Roads and Boats, it's like got to put a piece of plastic down and draw things on it i'm like i don't want to do that so <laughs> well, uh, you're like the poster child for risk legacy then <laughs> something like that i haven't done that either mark so oh. no i i haven't played any of those kind of crayon rail games uh, i saw one playing once uh at, a, at my local game store and uh it looked really interesting, but it was very old, you know, like uh, the components were very minimalistic sure. and, um, you know, that that's not necessarily meaning I'm not going to play it, but I was watching it and I looked at the time on the box. I'm like, oh my God, this game's going to take forever, apparently. Um, so I, I kind of passed it by. I think that was the original, was it Union Pacific or... Oh, Empire of, Builder. Empire Builder, thank you. That was it, Empire Builder. So anyway, I, I haven't played those. Uh, what What are your impressions of Euro Rails, and why should I play a crayon, uh, crayon rail game? Well, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to speak to the second one. You can let Ryan Sturm <laughs> do that. He's the one that loves these. But um, uh, this is another one that's very much sort of a product of its time. And I could have said that about Hoity Toity, too, that you know, if, he, if you'd got, gotten it in 1990, it would have been more of a revelation then than it maybe seems now. So Euro Rails and all the Crayon Rails series, uh, I don't know if they're all designed by Darwin Bromley, but he's sort of the, the point man behind Mayfair. Um, and uh, and be, in my pre-Euro days, um, I was looking around. I probably picked up a games magazine or something like that, which I was was disappointed in because it seemed like it was more about puzzles than about games. Yes. And, um, and but somewhere along the line, I got this reference, or, or maybe even on RGB back in those early days, uh, a recommendation for Euro Rails as um, uh, a good game, a good family game, and maybe even a good couples game. So I'm not sure how many people would say that now, because I think it's a little bit more of a product of its time, and I think it needs, well, 
I'm sure the purists will be upset at this, but I think it needs some modification to, to make it more fun and basically quicker because, you know, it's rated time is three hours. I mean, that's way, way too long. Right. And, and, and you don't, it doesn't have that dynamic of an arc that justifies the three hours in my mind. So, um, it's got, you know, it's one of a series crayon rails called because like you were talking about, you actually draw on the map. It's got one of those laminated style maps that you can draw on with crayons and they always have those crappy crayons inside. And then you can wipe off later with a, you know, a paper towel or something like that. And there's probably some, you know, nice dry erase vis-a-vis markers or something you could test to make sure those also work and it would look much nicer, but you have this very Spartan looking map of Europe. It's like white all over the place, all these little dots that are actually in a, like in a hex grid pattern, except you don't see the hexes. You're going to end up drawing the lines between them and you're going to dot to dot make networks, rail networks on the map between these major cities. And there's a few, besides the borders of the continent, there's some mountains and there's some other terrain that makes it more expensive or to, to build track in certain places. And then beyond that, it's a pickup and deliver game. So there's cards and there's little chip tokens that tell you, you know, that there's uh, oranges down in Valencia, Spain, and you get big money if you deliver them up to Poland or and that sort of thing. And you, and you crisscross the, the board, both building it and running trains at the same time. So I hope that sounds kind of interesting because I think as a, as a game type, that's really, really pretty cool. And as a light style train game, I mean, you're not investing in companies and you're not pushing each other out of markets and there's no stock, you know, you know things like that. It's really light. The thing is, it's just too freaking long. Um, so when we played it, I mean, like in the first play, we figured out, oh, my God, you know, in 1992, we figured out, oh, this is way, way too long. And uh, I can't remember exactly what we did now other than I think there's a train upgrade thing. The, the first trains you get, which you just move along with pawns, move at a certain clip, and then you can upgrade them, and they go at a faster clip. And we just said, okay, we're going to start with the fast trains, <laughs> and we're going to imagine that there is a super fast train that we can upgrade to to basically just up the movement rates. I don't think we changed anything else. I'm sure you can change – I think it goes to someone reaches a certain amount of money, so you could – dial that down and shorten the game. But you do want to give it enough time to build an interesting network. I mean, I don't want to just go from, you know, Paris to Berlin, deliver two things and win the game or, or lose the game. You want to actually build a crisscrossing network. So right. it is cool. I haven't played it with a full boat of, uh, you know, up to six players. And that would be a two-edged sword because on the one hand, you'd have lots more crisscrossing and that would be interesting. Uh, on the other hand, I can see the playtime going up really way too much. So... This is one of those games that I think um, uh, I'm not sure if of all the many train games we've had since then, I'm not sure if any of them really are like the development and lighter version of Euro Rails. I think the opportunity is still out there for someone to make a 21st century version of Euro Rails and the Crayon Rails games and get them down to 90 minutes where they belong. I mean, chop that play time in half and still have the fun drawing the map, pick up and deliver game. Right, right. No, I I think uh, you, you definitely have made a good case for that, and and I think people have been trying to do that. I mean, I, I think the closest that I can think to uh, of that would do that would be Steam. Um, you know, if you play sort of the base game of Steam, um, I, I can play that game easily in about an hour and a half. Yeah, and... I guess there's a lot more going on in Steam than in Euro Rails. Is there? Even, okay. even, even though Steam is shorter, you know, yeah, uh, or at least it can be. Um, yeah. You yeah. see track building and delivery. You know, it's real simple. Right, right. But, but no one's done it yet. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think. I, I, 
you know, I'm thinking to myself, it, my it, goodness, it, it, with all the train games, someone must have done it. Mark must be wrong. And I I'm know. sitting here thinking, all I'm like, to, yeah, someone yeah. just needs to basically add a pickup and deliver layer on top of Transamerica or Trans Europa, and you'd yes. be there. That's yeah, kind of the lightness yeah. that it that it really is. Okay. And it just doesn't fit with three hours. Yeah, no, I've got you. I've got you. No, and that would that would definitely not be uh, up my alley because you know, again, you're talking about the weight of the game not matching the playtime. You know, I, I think it, if it was that simplistic, I, I don't know that I would I would want to play it that long. That would be a game that you know, as people say, outstays its welcome. And so, um, yeah, yeah, no, that is very interesting. But it, it's an interesting thought. You know the the what you're mentioning, uh, Trans America or Trans Europa, because those are just you know super short, super fast, uh, very light, very easy. But uh, adding that sort of pick up and deliver uh, would be an interesting uh, addition to that game. Um, okay, looking down through our list here, Mark, I see another one uh, from uh, Wolfgang Kramer, uh, actually published by Milton Bradley in 1990, called Daytona 500. Um, and this kind of fascinated me just from a sort of general, uh, you know, maybe this is just showing my own sort of um, ignorance or whatever, but it just kind of, when I looked at the designer of Wolfgang Kramer, you know, from Germany yeah. doing a game about the Daytona 500, I was like, okay, is this like a, a retheme? Is this, you know, it just kind of, it seemed kind of an odd pairing to me. Um, I've never played it. Uh, is this one that you're familiar with? Because, you know, it's a racing game. Uh, but when I think of racing games, I think of like Formula Day or something like that. Uh, Formula D, I'm not even sure how to pronounce that, to be honest hmm. with you. Um, do you know this game? Sure. Yeah, I, I know this game. I used to own it. The only reason I don't anymore is really just kind of like those – that box size is big and, and uh, kind of doesn't fit my collection very much, uh, my collection space very well. Right. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's one of the games that's in a family of games that Cromer designed. And I think the first one – is it called Top Race? Or I think there's even something before that that was really more of an abstract move game. And then it, the – uh, there's been a few of these car racing team ones. In fact, when Mayfair was bringing over its first batch of Euros in the mid-90s, they had one called Detroit Cleveland Grand Prix. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes, that one I've it heard is, of, yeah. Yeah, it's just like this system. So, um, But Daytona 500, someone you know, had the sense, and I guess Milton Bradley's always had you know, European offices and things like that, so they, they uh, put it, uh, put this system to the Daytona 500 race, you know, and... Um, I'm not a NASCAR guy, Jeff. I don't know if you are, so no. I don't know very much about NASCAR. <laughs> and I, but I do know this is not a racing simulation, right? It's it's a light family Euro game sort of thing. And what you do in all of these games are you have this big hand of cards, uh, which shows uh, you know one, two, or up to six of the different cars that are in the race, and it tells you how many movement points they move, and it goes top down. So you might have a car card that says move the blue car four and then move the red car too. And they're in that order. They're always most movement to least movement. And uh, and like I said, there's cards that will have six of them. So move the green car six and the orange car five and the red car four all the way down, six to one. Or you occasionally have a card that moves just one car. So you get Delta's hand of cards. You see the cars on the like starting position. Um, there's an investment round where you get to decide which car you're going to buy. There's like an auction round to buy. And of course, you're looking at your hand and thinking, well... I've got movement points for every car on the board, but which one do I think I'm in the stronger position for? Or maybe which two? You're allowed to buy two cars and oh, nice. um, and zoom them around and try. And, and so 
of course, this is very Euro-ish, is that even though we're racing cars, ultimately what's going to matter is what your winnings are uh, money-wise. And so then when it's time to play, you play a card you play a card and move all of those cars, even the ones that aren't yours. Um, it's not a hidden uh, identity kind of game. Everyone knows once we finish the auction round who owns which car, and then you move them. And um, less so in Detroit uh, – sorry, uh, less so in Daytona 500, more so in the other games – there's a lot of blocking opportunities and, and lost movement points because of blocking. You can tell it's not a simulation, right? Because how, how could a car get blocked in the middle of a race? But um, in Daytona 500, uh, there's not all those choke points. It's not that kind of race. But there is the passing um, uh, on the outside, which takes extra movement points. And so that's the other way that movement points um, need to be saved for opportune times, or you purposefully bleed them away uselessly when you're when you're moving your opponent's cars. Right. So, very cool game, actually. Um, probably, uh, you know, may, probably my favorite of the ones we're going to talk about here in this 1990 list, and uh, <laughs> probably still, you know, you can find if you're really lucky, you find it at a thrift store. Otherwise, you look for it on eBay, and um, you know, you get a big giant box like Monopoly or Sorry, and it's going to have this game in it. But it's a Wolfgang Kramer Euro game, and it's really good. Nice, nice. Well, thanks for uh, the tip about that. I might uh, actually it's way have to... better than Formula D too. I'll tell you that. Is it okay? All right. <laughs> I'm a Formula D hater. So are you? Okay, I haven't played that one either. But uh, I was fascinated by the idea of. I think that's the game where, uh, depending on what gear you're in, you roll different dice, and that was just. If that's the game I'm thinking of. I just loved that idea. I thought that was the coolest idea um, that made just perfect yeah, sense to that me. Is right. Yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, that sounds really nifty um, as right. a sort but, of a core mechanic. You, I'll get more hate here, but it's going to push your button <laughs> of a game that's too long for what it is, I okay. think. I think it's got that imbalance thing like we were talking about for Euro Rails. But Okay, all right. Well, it is on the marketplace. <laughs> Someone is selling it for $29, so, you know, that's not bad. Another guy for $30, you know, so... Uh, it doesn't look like it's uh, too difficult to find, at least at the moment, and uh, sounds like it could be a fun family game. Um, two to four would, would work, because I don't think my wife would play this anyway, so <laughs> it would be a good one for me and the kids. All right, well, thanks for uh, filling me in on that one. Um, the next two that you had posted to me, because I'm sort of out of my depth on this list um, from 1990, there's not a lot here that I have a lot of uh, familiarity with, is we have a Gang of Four and 1835. Uh, of course, 1835 being one of the sort of 18xx family of train games. Um, now, uh, you know, you had indicated that you had not played that, and sadly, neither have I. So uh, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to really talk too much about that one. Um, but Gang of Four, uh, I have seen. Uh, that's one that my wife actually enjoyed playing back when Days of Wonder used to give you sort of a uh, a code. If you right. bought one of their games, you could then go online and play. This is before the iPad and all that. And you could play, uh, you know, Ticket to Ride or, or Gang of Four or, or whatever. And she really liked it. Um, we never actually ended up buying it because I believe it's, you know, it's, it's a game that is designed for specifically uh, uh, that many players. And uh, at the time, we didn't really have a, a game group to speak of when she was playing it. So she always just played online uh, versus the AI. Um, do you have any experience with that game? Well, I was trying to think about it. I, I can't hardly believe it, but I don't think I ever actually played Gang of Four because by even though it originally came out in 1990, 
Yeah, I think over in Europe. I don't think it's from Asia originally. But in any case, um, I was like a lot of other people. I didn't see it until Days of Wonder brought it out way later in 2002. And by that time, we had already discovered Tichu, which it got instantly compared to. So um, it's a ladder climbing, uh, ladder trick taking, climbing sort of game, just like Tichu. Right. And, um, but not partnership and not quite as involved. So it's kind of Tichu light. And that kind of could be. Uh, something going for it. I'm kind of surprised I never managed to pick up along the way. And now, although I still would love to try it someday, now, you know, you've got clubs out there from, um, who are those guys? North Star North Games, Star. you know, yep. mm-hmm. which seems like it scratches that exa- that same itch. Um, and uh, I have played clubs. I like that really well. And I, I, I don't know very much how Gang of Four would fit in there. But I mean, these are card games. That's something you can, you can never have too many of and you can fit them all in your... Uh, in your shelfie easily. I should give this a try someday uh, because one of the things that is, I like about teach you, but is also kind of intimidating about teach you is the partnerships part of it. I always, I always sort of clench up in partnership games and I feel like <laughs> no matter what I'm doing, I'm letting my partner down. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I just have that sense. And I understand getting a four does not have partners. And so that would, um, that would be kind of fun. And, and actually the, um, it's not like there's, theming that's going on in the game but there's you know window dressing of this asian theme stuff and certainly the fonts and the card backs and that looks pretty cool too so that's a whole lot of air nothing i can really say about <laughs> it but that sound interesting yeah no and, and i've played clubs as well and uh if it's anything like clubs i think it would be fun um, I enjoyed clubs. I'm not usually a really big. Uh, I, I'm not a guy who really enjoys trick taking games. Um, I, I'm I'm not a huge fan of those kinds of things. But clubs, I did actually enjoy. So, uh, if you think it would be similar to that, then uh, you know that's one that maybe uh, I should check out as well, if for no one else and for my my wife's sake, because uh, yeah, she did enjoy it. So, um, okay, the last one on this list here, um, and then I think we're we're sadly going to have to leave 1990 behind, uh, so that we can get to the main uh, meat of the episode here is uh, a game called airlines um so airlines i'm assuming this is not the same as like airlines europe or this was not uh the the original uh progenitor of that game was it it is aha all right well then i do know lots about airlines europe but i don't know anything about airlines so uh, i know when i recorded an episode about airlines europe with joel uh, Joel Eddy over there at Drive Through Reviews, um, he had I think a little bit of experience with with the original game, um, but I have none. So what can you tell me about Airlines, Mark? Um, well, right. So this is by Alan Moon, Alan R. Moon, and uh, uh, it is in a there's a family tree that goes from Airlines to Union Pacific to Airlines Europe, and like um, a lot of Alan Moon games, you will see similarities in some of his other games. Uh, to mechanisms. He has a lot of crossover mechanisms between games, I think. So he has a very distinctive style, like you were talking about with uh, Feld earlier. Right. Says me, anyway. So (laughs) Airlines is another one in the sort of early Euro days that I remember getting, you know, uh, I don't know if buzz is the right word, but it had a reputation like, hey, this is is a notable game. And in in part, it may have been notable that here was an American designer getting published by one of these German companies, Abacuspiele. And um, Alan Moon had you know, done his work at Avalon Hill and done his little private game company, White Wind. And somewhere in the middle there, he got this game placed with um, Abacuspiele. And so it was pretty, pretty notable. I guess that's kind of, you know, now we're kind of used to that. But back then it was kind of a big deal. Right. So 
uh, I'm guessing a, a number of people have probably played, if not Union Pacific, at least Airlines Europe, and they may know more about it than, than I do because I played Airlines after all this great reputation, and I didn't really like it that much. I didn't like the way um, – you know, the squiggly lines that tell you how the various routes went together and the cards you play uh, uh, worked. And then it got transported over this train theme in Union Pacific and it changed a little bit, but not, not, and made a little smoother, but not totally different. And uh, I didn't like that too much either. And then Airlines Europe came out, and I gather a lot of people kind of like that. And I think it's the smoothest plane of all. So I don't, I don't really see a reason to go back other than for historical interest and play the earlier versions because you've got the, the best version of all, I think, is probably Airlines Europe. Right. Um, and uh, but they all are in that same family. If you played Airlines Europe, it would take you, you know, all of ten minutes to get readjusted to how airlines work. Right. Very simple. Yeah, I'm looking at the board here, uh, the image of the board on Board Game Geek, and it it has very much exactly the same sort of feel. You know, you you see the roots, and then you see these little circles on the roots, which I am assuming are uh, sort of uh, marking the number of uh, people who can occupy that particular route uh, in the same way that it works in Airlines Europe, where, you know, certain routes, you might be able to have three different uh, um, airlines, uh, you know, going between Berlin and Paris, but, you know, the the, the one sort of airline that's uh, making the, the trip to, uh, you know, I, I think uh, over in Russia somewhere, um, you know, that, that there's really only one airline that's going to be able to claim that route sort of a thing. So um, it looks like it's probably the same kind of system. And Airlines Europe is a game that I enjoy quite a bit. It's actually still in my collection. I'm sort of waiting for my kids to just get just a little bit older. Uh, I think it's a, a light enough game that I should be able to introduce it to them soon. And I think it's probably my favorite game to introduce the concept of sort of uh, uh, stock buying and stock holding. And uh, it's a very, very simple system. And yet one that uh, really kind of uh, gives that feeling. Uh, I, I find that for people who aren't familiar with these kind of style of games, this notion of, you know, I don't own blue, you know, blue is not mine. You know, I actually can own any airline. Right. I can have a yeah. piece in multiple, you know, and, and yeah, I might, I might control blue for a while, but then maybe later on I shift and I go and I buy some stock in something else. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, games like airlines Europe are a fantastic way to kind of, teach that to people who either have not encountered that kind of thing before in a game or, you know, you're trying to kind of get them into it before you throw something like Imperial at them where, you know, everybody's like, but, but England is mine. It's like, no, England's not yours. Uh, you know, I'm going to take it from you and then I'm going to run it into the ground and uh, I'm going to tax them and start some wars and I'm going to leave them for dead. And then someone else can come in and pick them up. And, uh, you know, it's a truly wonderfully evil game. Um but again, it's that, that whole style of stock games. And I think that uh, out of all of the games that I've played, Airlines Europe and uh, surprisingly, Steel Driver, which I, I kind of think of as almost a, uh, I, I think of Mordred and Steel Driver as Martin Wallace's kind of like family games. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, now, of course, he has The Witches, which I have not played, but I understand is very light. But Steel Driver is actually very easy to wrap your mind around, very easy to play. I've taught non-gamers that game, and, and it's it's always gone over well. Uh, and it, it's a very simple game. And again, it's that, that basic stock kind of a game. 
um, you know, we're going to invest in these railroads and we're going to run them uh, to their different routes. And then at the end, we're going to have this big pickup and deliver phase, uh, at least in steel driver. So uh, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I like Airlines Europe so much is it's very accessible. And yet there's there's a good game there. And it definitely does not overstay its welcome. So uh, it sounds like from what you're describing to me, you know, that I would probably agree with you. And not having played Union Pacific or Airlines, if those were considerably longer, I think I would definitely prefer the experience that I get with Airlines Europe. Uh, well, I don't want to over, overstate, I mean, how different the games are because they, I mean, I think Airlines Europe is the best produced game of them, right. but there's, they're, they are remarkably similar. I mean, I think if you like Airlines Europe, you will like Airlines and you'll like playing on the American map. I mean, it's kind of neat to play on a different map. Right. Um, uh, but in terms of game mechanisms and how it plays, I mean, you can, you know, you can do fine to just enjoy Airlines Europe. That's why it came out again. It's because a lot of people like this system and it needed to come out. I guess it's come out about every 10 years. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, though, you mentioned, you know, it, it seems like a system that would be very easy to uh, put out different maps for. I'm surprised that that hasn't happened, uh, given the popularity of the game, uh, at least well, when it was initially released. Maybe with this new edition, it can. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Well, you know, uh, Mark, unless there's another game that you're really dying to talk about from 1990, I think we can uh, maybe safely close this down uh, for the time being. And uh, we may be leaving some gems there unexplored. I understand that. But, uh, uh, you know, we, we've uh, been talking for a little while. And uh, I'd like to kind of get over to your favorite game. So if you don't have any objections, why don't we slide on over and take a look at Ant Decker? Sounds good. Mark, I have been wanting to kind of learn about Entecker for a while, um, and, and my real motivation, other than the chance to get to talk with you, um, is the fact that exploring New Horizons, there were some things about that game that I really liked, and then some things that really kind of irritated me uh, that I did not particularly care for, and so I traded it away. And then I heard, uh, it might have even been through you, because um, I, I don't remember exactly where I heard it, or maybe when I was browsing through the forums on New Horizons, you know, somebody said, how's this compare to the old one? And you might have chimed in there. And I remember hearing about the original Entdecker and thinking, okay, that, that might actually be more to my liking, but it was so, it was like impossible to find, and it was very expensive. And I was like, all right, well, I wasn't a huge fan of the re-implementation, so I kind of kept my distance and held off and haven't pulled the trigger. And so when I heard that you wanted to talk about it, I'm like, all right, this is an old game. It's from a great designer, and maybe it's a game that's a hidden gem that's not getting a lot of love, and maybe Mark can explain to me why I should get this game. So um, mm. if you don't mind, I'm going to sort of turn it over to you and uh, ask you if you can just kind of explain to people who are listening. Uh, you know, we don't have to do a whole rules explanation here. I don't do that on the show, but just kind of the basics of the game, what the game's about, um, you know, and and uh, what the kind of overall goal of the game is. Okay, sure. So um, it came out in 1996. It's by 
and I, I know you said tuber. I, I can't get my mouth to say anything about Klaus Teuber just because that's how I have heard it. And you and could case, be right. You could be right. I don't know. I just I'm anyway, trying to remember my designer, high school German. The famous of, <laughs> right, the famous sellers of Catan guy, and um, that's kind of notable here too because the game. You know, we um, you may have heard this story. It's kind of gone around that uh, when Klaus originally was designing, he had this sort of mega game in mind. Um, that was, you know, you explore on the map and then you find islands, and then you settle islands, and then you then you kind of jockey for position on the islands. And as we understand, he never actually made that mega game because in his mental design process, he realized that was that was never going to work. It was just too huge. And so it actually split into, so the story goes, three different games. Settlers of Catan, everyone knows that. Entdecker, which we're going to just talk about. And then Lowenhurts. Uh, or domain, as it's known over here too, and those are the three sort of offspring of this one original idea. So, um, uh, Entdecker uh, was the second in that series, I think, that came out. Pretty sure it's the second in that series. Um, it's for two to four players, plays uh, in about forty-five minutes. Although, as we're going to discuss, I think most people play, you know, one or another variant that makes it a little bit longer. Um, and it actually, you know, was second place uh, in the Deutscher Spiel Prize, which is, you know, the other big German game prize besides Spiel des Jahres uh, that year. The first was El Grande, which is also won Spiel des Jahres. So it's in good company there. But as I recall, the, uh, you know, people were a little underwhelmed by it, partly because sellers had made, you know, the most titanic splash imaginable. Right. And so this was the, the follow-up game, at least in terms of, you know, uh, uh, publication release dates. So there was a little letdown there for some people. Um, uh, and so it took me, and it was harder to get games in, from Germany uh, back then as well. And so it took me a little while to finally pull the trigger and get it because I was a little bit cooled off by their reputation. But I, I thought I would like it, and I ended up liking it right from the get-go. And there's been a number of us um, that are big fans of the game. You've had Joe Huber on the show a few times. He's a big fan of the game. Mark Jackson's a big fan of the game. And the truth is, almost everyone I've showed the game to has enjoyed it quite a bit. Now, that doesn't mean they rate it a 10 and make it their number one game like I do, but they like it quite a bit and have wanted to get their hands on it. And then sometimes I have to help them track it down because it's not the easiest thing to get. So what's going on? Uh, the name Decker means discoverer, as I think I said, and it is an exploration game. It's um, a game where the map starts, uh, uh, the board starts blank, and you're going to be laying these tiles to fill it in, and it fills in with a sort of nautical thing. You're going to see this, um, all these little islands and ocean in between. Think of it as sort of the Caribbean. It's like lots of little islands, right. not like a big continent. You're not discovering the new world, really. You're just finding a whole bunch of these little islands. And um, the point is to uh, you know, play these tiles to the board, fill in the map, you have little forts and settlement pieces, little wooden pieces that you get to put down to score points, hopefully more points than your opponents, as the board fills in. And then when the board fills all the way in, that's the game. The game's over. Um, and so the reason I knew I was interested in it from the very beginning is um, I, I, I've, I've never really been a computer game player, um, but I've dabbled here and there with different things. And uh, I know the game Civilization uh, – which crosses over into board games too, but the but the computer game Civilization, which has a long history, the ones I played were you know way back when. I don't know if they still have the thing now in the in the new modern versions of Civ, but the one the one of the features I really loved about it was that you know you start with your little place on the, on the map and then 
pretty soon you find the coastline and pretty soon you're making little boats and then you start sort of find you explore the coastline and then maybe even get bold and sail out into the ocean um, and maybe find some things there and i just love that exploration that sort of nautical exploration experience and i wanted to see if there's a board game that did that and um ed decker's the closest i've ever found to something that really scratches that itch for me um and uh um yeah, and I've, I've, I've loved it ever since. Um, so let's see. Um, let me talk about the basic version of the game, and you can maybe understand why it was a little underwhelming to people somehow. Uh, when you look at the board, you'll see this big, I think, very attractive board um, that has a you know score tracker on the outside. It has uh, – it's uh, I've got it written down here what the grid is. But anyway, it's a grid of spaces, I think 10 by 7 spaces, Um of these squares and a bunch of tiles that fit into those. So they're kind of like Carcassonne tiles, but not as nice, actually. They're not as thick, no, they're unfortunately, not, yeah. as that. Um, but on your turn, uh, you will be uh, deciding where to go. You, there's one single wooden boat. I think that's that's an important distinction that comes, that separates this game from some of its descendants, is that uh, more or less we all share the same boat. So in the beginning of your turn, you'll take this boat, you'll figure out... Um, uh, where to put it on the board that leads into the unknown, uncharted areas of the board. And then you draw some number of tiles, place them onto the board, fill things in, maybe plop uh, a piece down, kind of like a meeple in Carcassonne, although in this case it's a, a scout, a fort, or a settlement. And if at the end of your turn you have completely surrounded an island, that island will score. Okay, And it scores as many points as there are tiles that make up the island. So if it's five tiles that made up that island... You know, like a five-tile city in Carcassonne, or um, it'll score five points. And if you've got the most important, most valuable wooden pieces on the on that island, you score that five points. Um, and whoever it's got very generous scoring, where whoever's in second scores half that, whoever's in third scores half that again. You keep rounding up, so it ends up being that maybe more unlike Carcassonne, kind of everyone scores when these things get filled in. So the game progresses like that until you basically fill the whole thing in. Now, one of the really kind of quirky things about it in this original edition is that um, uh, I haven't mentioned money yet. You do have to pay gold to uh, to uh, explore new tiles, and the way you get gold is with a spinner. You know, we, were, we were talking about Milton Bradley earlier. Yes, this is a you know a piece of cardboard that has a plastic spinner on it that you nice. assemble the first time, and then you you spin you know, and then it, it and it goes around and it tells you you either get two, three, four, or five gold or something like that. <laughs> um, so that was one of the things that you can imagine. The gamers, the sophisticated Euro gamers of the mid '90s, thought, "Oh my gosh, you know that is beyond the pale. We are not going to tolerate any spinner, you know, with <laughs> liners that you have to figure out to respin or argue about." Um, but it did have that feature, and you were, and you would, uh, anyway. So you explore, and so people thought not only was the spinner a little weird, they thought it was awfully luck dependent. You either draw good tiles or you don't, and that sort of thing. So um, one of the right out of the shoot. If you you know go back and look at the early stuff like uh, the game cabinet, if you know about that um, yes. old website, right? So um, a guy who was um, very notable in the sort of early early scene, Emmanuel Soding, you know, goes by the nickname Manu. I don't even know if he's around anymore. But I don't know if he's on BGG. I hope he is. You know, he posted early on, "Hey, everyone's a little underwhelmed by this game. It's a little too light, family luck oriented sort of thing. But we've done this simple little variant, and it makes a big difference. And we think you should try it." Words to that effect, anyway. And what he said was, okay, first of all, we're still going to keep the spinner, 
uh, because no one ever thought of replacing the spinner, I guess. But when I spin it, you know, when it comes up, whatever it does, we all get that same amount of gold. So that takes a little bit of the weird luck of the spinner away. Um, also, we will rotate the start player, another very common thing that uh, we see in lots of games, but this game didn't have it out of, out of the shoot. And then a real critical idea that, I, that seems pretty clear that Klaus Teuber himself must have liked because of what he did in uh, uh, the later versions of the game was uh, Manu said, uh, we're going to take a few of the tiles, uh, you know, which have the types of jungle and water on them. Again, if you just think transform the fields and cities of Carcassonne into ocean and islands of the Caribbean, and you'll kind of visualize it. Um, anyway, Manu said, we're going to take uh, a number of those tiles, basically one of each type, you know, a corner piece, uh, a straight, that kind of thing. And we all get one face-up tile of those to have in our personal collection. So at certain key points in the game, not a lot, it doesn't, it doesn't throw the game off. It was a clever little variant. You could get a, you could, you know, instead of doing a random draw of a tile, you'd have this face-up tile to, to pull and, uh, you know, get that key um, tile right when you needed it. And that little tweak added quite a bit to the strategy. And pretty soon everyone that I knew played it that way. Um, and that's kind of how the original game uh, came to be. Now, there's a couple things I've kind of glossed over because I don't want to go through all oh, like the rules rules. Right, right. But it's important for contrasting with uh, the later games that came out. Uh, first, I want to talk about these bonuses. So the game came with a bunch of uh, uh, agricultural bonuses that I guess thematically are the, the thing that was found on that island, guava or papaya or bananas or whatever the heck they are. Okay. So um, uh, if you have more than just the tiniest little scout on the island, then when the island scored, whoever's in first place on the island gets to draw one of those tokens. And it'll be worth just a few points. That's another key point that'll come up later. It'll be worth one, two, three, or four points. In fact, there's a little mini bell curve around that. So they're mostly twos and threes, occasionally a one or a four. And I've already told you that the island score is equal to the number of tiles. So let's say you got a, an island that's five tiles big, and you got a, a, a bonus tile We'll call it guava, that was worth two points. Okay, so now first points get seven. But even the second place player gets half of that, which means half of the bonus as well, right? So they get half of seven rounded in their favor is four. So it all, again, stays very friendly. Um, so that's one thing that's got going on it. I guess there's two more things I want to say. The other is um, uh, that the tiles that you're drawing have this, I think, really cool feature that I would love to see in some other games, which is that most of the backs of the tiles are just blank backs, like, again, like Carcassonne. That's a useful point of reference here. But some of the tiles have a question mark on them. Right. Okay? And that's a wild uh, or, or a chance. Maybe it's better to call it chance, like in, in a Monopoly. Um, and uh, it's on the front side, it's still going to have another terrain tile, you know, ocean and island, that sort of thing. But we'll also have a symbol on it that indicates an, a special event. Um, and... Half of those are good and half of those are bad. You know, either pirates take half of your gold or um, you find uh, ancient ruins that give you three victory points or those sorts of things. And so it's just a little bit of, you know, wheel of fortune type luck thrown on in the middle of the turn. And since you have multiple draw piles of tiles to choose from, you might start your turn. You see there's, you know, four draw piles out there with different tiles and two of them have question marks. Well, now it's up to you. Do you, you know, do you want to just have the extra 
fun if that's what you find it is to, to, to pull that question mark and maybe get something good, maybe get something bad? Or do you say like, no, 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 I've got a strategy going on here. You know, it would be nice to get those victory points, but if those pirates took half my goal, that would really screw up my strategy. I'm just going to go with a, a regular tile, which of course has its own randomness as to what's on the front side. So that's a really cool feature. And it's such a little tiny ad. It would seem like that could drop into all kinds of games. Um, but maybe people don't like it. In my games, people have liked it quite a bit, although they sometimes get nervous about it. Um, <laughs> and then sometimes they avoid those. But eventually, the, if people are avoiding it, it comes to the time when all of the draw piles. Yes, yes. I can't remember how many you set up, six or something like that. They all have question marks on it. So someone's finally going to have to go for it. Cool little feature. And the last little thing I think that's pretty cool I think I may have mentioned it already in passing, which is that we all have the same boat, okay? So it's not like I'm going to start building over in this corner of the map and you're going to start building over in that corner of the map. No, instead we have this one wooden boat, and on the start of your turn, you, uh, you, I always remind people, pick it up. You, know, you don't have to start from where the last player did. So you could actually start in different corners of the map, but... But you can start wherever you want. You just pick that boat up and you put it in its starting point. And so it ends up sort of naturally occurring, and even more in the in the later game we're going to talk about, that things sort of develop along a certain really kind of path of exploration. You know, you could start in all four different corners of the map, but I think things tend to expand out from where they are, even though we're sharing this one boat and can take it in different directions. Um, that's just a subtle effect that is mo- – that is made apparent by some later versions of the game that have changed that rule to, I think, the the the, the game family's detriment. The original is best. All right. Well, thank you very much for that overview because, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't had the chance to play the original. And I, I was really struck by, as you were talking, kind of going like through a mental checklist in my head <laughs> uh, to Antecker Exploring New Horizons. And I'm like, yep, okay, yep, remember that, yep. Oh, yeah, question mark tiles. Yep, yep, remember that. Yep. Uh, one boat. Yep, yep. And if you pick it up, you can move it and put it anywhere you want. Then you're going to have to spend gold. Yep, mm-hmm, yep, remember that. Okay. Uh, have to complete it. And all these things. I remember the fortress pieces and, and sort of that, that uh, um, you know, more powerful pieces uh, gives you majority um, sort of for kind of like a, an area majority effect. I'm like, yep, 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 yep. And it, it was interesting because pretty much everything you described is what I remember of Antecker exploring New Horizons, right? Except for the native hut tracks, which coincidentally happens to be the thing about Antecker exploring New Horizons. This is the reason why it's no longer in my collection. So yeah. um, that that was a, a kind of a mechanic that that really just irritated me. Um, and and I think it was sort of a, a an odd sort of an offshoot of the system you were describing before where you had those markers for the different kinds of fruits and things of that nature um in exploring new horizons you know you had those various tracks and you're kind of trying to race you know up these tracks in order to gain you know these benefits at the the end of the tracks and i found it to be sort of like a a side game that ended up being uh very very distracting you know it 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 it, it's sort of you know, thematically, it kind of made sense. Okay, well, now that you're on the island, you're not just like content to sit, 
on the beach and hang out and say, wow, check out this cool place that we found. You're going to be traveling inland and you're going to be, you know, exploring and possibly meeting, you know, natives and then interacting with them, et cetera, et cetera. And so thematically, it sort of made sense to me, even though it was abstracted in the form of these tracks. But from a gameplay standpoint, Mark, it, it, it kind of like, it sort of like divided the game in a way that didn't work for me. Uh, eventually, it 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 didn't. In other words, it didn't complement the main exploration phase um, on the main board in the way that I wanted it to. And I, I I know I'm not doing a fantastic job of articulating why, but I just remember feeling very sort of divided between these sort of two objectives of moving down these tracks, but then also. Um, you know, still continuing to try to explore, still trying to get my pieces out, score my points. Um, you know, points were very tight in the game because everybody was getting something, you know, so you never really had like a comfortable lead. Um, and, and so these are the things about exploring New Horizons that kind of bothered me. So was this Native Hut thing completely absent in the original version? Yeah, and you put your finger on it that this, I mean, there's a few changes to the new version, uh, Exploring New Horizons, or, or the new Ant Decker, as they call it in Germany. And uh, this is the most notable one. And this is the one that, I guess there are a few people who actually like this, but everyone that I've talked to that prefers the new version, this is the sticking point. They don't like this thing that was added to the game that you've been describing. Um, and it, it, you know, actually it was really helpful in prepping for this show. I hadn't really thought, I hadn't really been able to understand why it, it bothered me or what it was even doing in the game. But like you say, I realized, oh, okay, what's going on here is there we've all we've got this nautical exploration. What they're doing is adding this overland exploration. Except you're not really moving guys on the board. They're not moving over the over the island. It just gets abstracted. If I've got more scouts on the island, then I get to put more scouts on this little mini scoring track, which means I'm more likely than you, although not guaranteed, you know, right. to get the bonus for that island. So um, it it's the sort of thing that I think if someone had described it to me, oh, we're going to add this abstraction of the overland thing. I said, oh yeah, that that, w- that sounds like it would make sense. But in actual play, I find it I find it really at odds with what's going on because you're only able to put one piece on the board in a turn. So now you're having to make a choice of, well, am I trying to score the island by putting ports and settlements and things like that, right? The, which is the nautical exploration part, or am I trying to score the overland bonus, um, which is not friendly scoring with ties split and stuff like that. That's an all or nothing kind of prospect. Um, you either get it or you don't. Isn't that right? That's how I recall. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I recall that as well. And So, yeah, so that sort of really rubbed me the wrong way. And, um, and unfortunately, I don't think it's very easy to, to take – uh, the new version of the game and sort of try to retro it back into the old version. You'd think since it has these, sim, you know, so has many of the same components, you could play the old style with the new game. Um, and maybe someone has done that successfully. It would be good if they'd write in and tell you that. But I, I've uh, thought through it, and it's not really obvious how, how that's going to work. The other thing, though, that happens besides that sort of jarring of the two mechanics that are or or thematic things that are going on is um, uh, two other things that I don't like and then a lot of little details that I do like. And so now I play a variant that's sort of a mashup of the two games, taking the best parts of of both as far as I'm concerned. The two things I 
the two other things in the new game that I don't like as much are simply it's bigger and longer. Right. And I, I don't know why exactly someone thought that part was a good idea other than maybe since there's more turns when you have to decide between playing a scout uh, for the overland ex- exploration versus playing something else for the nautical exploration. Maybe they thought you need to have more turns, but that doesn't even sound like a good idea, does it? I mean, they take the number of spaces and they grow it by about a third, which makes the game last basically that much longer. I don't like that. Um, and, uh, then the other thing, well, some people like, and some people don't, I kind of go back and forth on this is that you will also have some tiles on, uh, the board when the game starts floating out in the middle of the board. And some people thought that doesn't make any sense for exploration. Why can there be a tile out there? But I, I can thematically I can get on board with that because it seems like it's it's El Dorado, it's the Fountain of Youth, it's a legend of something out there that you have to go find. That part sounds kind of cool, but those things are worth a lot of points. Yes, those, yeah. and in fact, so are those um, uh, uh, you know fruit token bonus thingies we were talking about in the huts. Those are worth a, a lot of points too, and so I think they really throw off the scoring. You know, I was describing in the old game these. It's very common to have islands that score, you know, like I said, first place scores seven, second place scores rounded up three and a half to four, third place scores two, fourth place scores one. You know, that, that point differential is pretty small. Everyone gets a little bit. Now you throw in something where, you know, and the winner gets another 15 points. But yeah. the islands are still kind of the same size. Yeah. Um, it's just odd that way. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100% because um, it, it also, I felt, uh, made the game too directive um, in that, you know, everyone was going for those big bonus tiles, you know? Everyone was sort of shooting for that. Yeah. So rather than this sort of natural, sort of organic exploration, um, you know, this feeling of discovery, it made it much more linear, you know? It's like, okay, I want to get there. Because if I can get there and complete an island with that tile on it, I'm going to score those points. That's how I recall that working. Um, and so I, I really kind of uh, felt it almost made it more into almost like a race game in some ways. And, and mm. I, I, didn't, I didn't like that mechanic at all. I, di- I didn't uh, care for that. So uh, I'm glad to hear that, you know, that that wasn't in the original version because – you know, again, I think it's it's uh, subtraction by addition is what it sounds like to me. Um, yeah, you know, I, I th- think so, too. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, since I was such a big fan of the original game, I was very excited to hear the new game was coming out. I forgot. I mean, it came out in 2001, so even that's been a long time. But, you know, that was five, six years after the uh, first one, and so there was enough time to play it and then hear that, oh, my gosh, Toyber, who's now Mr. Cosmos, is going to, make a deal with his new publishing company, come out with the new edition. I was very excited about it um, and uh, quite let down uh, when it came out. But there are all these other features that I thought were pretty cool. Do you want me to talk about those? Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Because, you know, so, I, uh, I don't want people to think we're totally trashing on, uh, you know, the, the, the new version. Um, so, yeah, I mean, t- tell us what you do like about it. Well, that that's an opportunity for me to say I've got a, a friend who's on the show um, on my program sometimes, and he's got another friend, a guy named Brian, who says Mark hates games because apparently <laughs> that's the impression I'm giving out in my podcast <laughs> as I try to sort of analyze things. I'm picking things apart the way you pick apart a movie, I guess, and uh, he thinks I don't like games, but I I do, I do, Brian. But I'm going to go on and tell you about some things <laughs> I do, don't like about some of these others. Okay, but there were some developments in the new game that I thought were really, really slick. Um, 
One is that uh, as, as charming and anachronistic as that spinner is, they replace the spinner. Uh, they put uh, uh, a, a die in there, and that yep. sounds like tomato, tomato. But but the thing is, you roll the die only if your if your current gold, the amount you've got on hand, is below a certain amount. So as long as you stay, um, you know, solvent, <laughs> let's say, you don't have to roll the die. Now the reason you don't want to roll the die is because you roll it and it's got numbers two through six uh, plus a wild side, a star or something. And you get that much gold, but everyone gets that much plus one. So there's an incentive and a little strategic hook in there to sort of manage your money so that someone else is having to roll the income die. Um, so that's cool. But there are times for sure that you, you know, you got to go for broke. You got to spend all your money because there's this really good opportunity. So I thought the income die was pretty slick. The other thing that was so simple and very slick was these board edge costs. Yes. So that if you look at the board – um, in the original version, it's just you know a big rectangle of all these grid spaces to put your tiles in. But if you look at the new one, it's the same thing, slightly bigger. But they indicate that one side, you can start from there for free. And these other two sides, it costs you an extra gold, like a tax. And the third side costs you an extra two gold, which is actually kind of a lot in this game. So it just, through that little bit of incentive, sort of forces the players to sort of expand the map from left to right or east to west, however you want to think of it. And it ends up kind of looking the way you think explorers would fill in a map. They don't fill it in pockmark here, there, and everywhere. They kind of start from what's known and sort of push the frontier out. And just through that little board edge thingy and the little tax for that, it kind of happens naturally. It was really easy to graph that onto the old version of the game too. That's cool. Um, uh, the other thing that I uh, think is pretty neat, although it's funny, I didn't even realize this may have been in the old game all along after all, in a slightly different different form, is that when you start your expedition, you sort of trace a line to a board edge from your boat. So I start the boat here in this spot in the middle of the board, and I'm going to start my new turns exploration here. Well, I can sort of trace uh, my ship ultimately came from one edge of the board or another, and if it happens to go past someone's wooden marker, you know, their fort or settlement, then I have to pay them some money, um, like a toll or something like that. That was a clever idea. And then the last thing is there's face-up tiles explicitly in the game of uh, uh, New Endecker, uh, or Exploring New Horizons, and you just have to pay an incredible premium for it. So that uh, Emmanuel Sodin Manu variant that I talked about earlier, I think maybe Toyber came up with it independently on its own, but I imagine he saw, oh, pe- look how people are playing my game. They decided they once in a while want to be able to have the opportunity to not trust the luck of the draw, but actually pick the tile they really need. And um, the way he did it is it cost you four times the normal amount. It cost you four gold instead of one to draw one of those tiles. Um, but it ends up, it's, it, that's another thing where there's a big strategic payoff in terms of the cool things you get to do and the plans you get to make for a very tiny addition to the rules. So any of those sort of developments are good, right? Anytime you get lots of strategy for a little bit of rules, it's awesome. Um, And those are some of the good things he did. So like I was saying, now if you go on BGG, I've got some file posted there where I said like, well, here's how you can take all the really wonderful developments of the new game, (laughs) but graph them onto the a uh, slimmer frame of the old game and get what to me is the best of both worlds. Right, right. Well, I appreciate you sharing that insight because, uh, you know, that the, there are some things 
you know, it's good to hear that there are some things in the new game that you like, and it sounds like you've kind of cobbled together sort of your ideal version uh, of Entecker. And all of the, the mechanisms that you're describing are ones that I remember fondly as well, in particular the income die. I really thought that that was a, a brilliant kind of an idea. And as you said, very simple, you know, and, and there's something that's very alluring about a simplistic sort of rule or just one little minor thing that, as you said, has a, a quite a lot of impact on the game. You know, I remember playing New Horizons and that income die was always on my mind. You know, it was always like it was like a game of chicken between my wife and I, like, you know, who can go the longest before someone's got to roll the die? Because in that game, you know, one gold was not insignificant. So, you know, you getting just one more gold than your opponent is, you know, going to allow you to do something uh, either, you know, that, that you might not have been able to do, uh, you know, start in a better location, pay that toll that you needed to, or maybe gave you, you know, just enough money that you needed to buy that tile that's going to complete the island for you and allow you to score it before your opponent, you know, steals the majority from you or, or something of that nature. So, yeah, I agree. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree that there those are some good sort of uh, changes. And it also reminds me a little bit of, you know, I don't know how you play Carcassonne, but many times when I'm playing Carcassonne with my friends who are gamers, we do, you know, the, this sort of idea where you always have, um, you know, choices of tiles. You know, we start off with two tiles. And then you're drawing. And we like that because, again, it gives you sort of a little bit of foresight and a little bit of an ability to kind of plan and something to maybe shoot for other than just a random tile flop. Now, your O sounded somewhat disappointed. Well, <laughs> but no, I, I kind of like that. You know, I like sometimes playing with that control. You know, that, that, that little tweak makes a lot of difference in the gameplay. Um, you know, and, and, and so, like you said, I, I enjoy that. But um, you, you sound like that, that's not necessarily your thing? Well, actually not for Carcassonne, but, but I remember when it came out and playing it that way a few times. And um, I like it as long as people can go quickly. But, I mean, uh, and, and having just one extra tile, I think, is kind of the sweet spot for doing that. I've played um, – I don't know if you've ever played a game called Wooly Bully. Oh, yeah. Um, love Wooly Bully, yeah. Do you love Wooly Bully? Well, oh, see, you know, God, Wooly Bully, yeah. to me, is an example of that idea gone very wrong because <laughs> – you can have more tiles, and they're double-sided tiles. I know. When I, I know. played with players, I mean, the sort of the sort of decision space exploded in their mind, and it and it got it got um, it showed what was so great about Carcassonne, um, and uh, and just a little bit of choice. But but I know what you mean. Right, um, right. Now I, I would be delinquent if I didn't point out. Um, I already mentioned, you know, people like Joe Huber and Mark Jackson who are big fans of the old game and I think big fans of the monosodium variant that I described early on, they've, uh, I think both played my mashup and neither of them like it. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they also don't like the new game too much. And, um, and while they might like some of the features of the new game, they don't think that all of those little things of the new game that I brought to the old game are a great idea. So I don't want to misrepresent uh, their point of view, because I've already said how much they they love the old game. They love the old original game, right? Well, you know, those two gentlemen are are uh, a wealth of knowledge about games in general, and uh, they they are 
quite often, uh, I know Eric will yell at me about this, but I think that, that they are quite often um, uh, gentlemen who prefer originals, you know, that, that seem to like, you know, for example, Joe, you know, really prefers Funkenschlag, the original over Power Grid. Um, right. You know, I think Eric actually might like uh, Power Grid a little bit better. As a matter of fact, I have an episode ready to release uh, in, in about a week or so with Eric on Power Grid. Uh, we recorded that one a long time ago and just have mm. not had the chance to, to get it out there yet. But, uh, yeah, you know, I think that the, those guys generally uh, – I'm not going to say that they're purists because uh, because the, that makes <laughs> it sound like they're snobby and they're not. But I think they generally prefer original versions um, as a general rule over uh, new implementations. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if uh, they don't care for a mashup. Um, and then, you know, you have other people – like, uh, you know, Joel, I've, I've spoken with Joel quite a few times and, you know, he, he kind of has a, a, I think, a if I'm not misquoting him and I'm sure he'll tell me if I am a sort of natural aversion to house kind of ruling or fixing games, you know, like he, he, he wants to play the game as it was originally intended and designed. And, you know, I, I think that he kind of, um, sometimes uh, has a little bit of a problem with with games that need to be kind of like fixed by the community in order to play them. You know, where people say, "No, nah, no, nah, man, this game really is is isn't that bad." You know, you just got to play it this way. You know, no, Thunderstone's a great game if you play with the epic, you know, Thunderstone variant that Tom Vassell came up with. And you know, um, and, and I well, can sort of understand that that you know sometimes you, you you have to automatically wonder like, is there something wrong with a game if it needs to be fixed? Um, so what would you say to that about the additions that you feel are, are so good and so useful for the original Entdecker? Well, let me just say I understand that point of view completely. And uh, more than anything else, I agree with that point of view. I don't like games that didn't finish their development by the publisher and that the community had to mess with. So it might sound funny after I've just described this mashup. But but let me tell you, so – I still like the original edition of Entdecker. I mean the original, original edition of Entdecker. Right, right. Spinner, full luck, family style, <laughs> all that kind of thing. But what I found is I've, <laughs> when I play with my friends, I say, you know, I really think you guys, I should show you, you should see how it really was, you know, that some people thought was too lucky, and I think you might find that it's pretty good. And my friends end up saying, no, 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 we like your way, let's just play it your way. But me, I... I, I, I I normally don't like those house rules. It's only because this is like my number one favorite game that I really like it in like three different ways. I'll play the original, play the Manu variant, I'll play my variant. Um, one of these days, I'll even give New Ant Decker, you know, exploring New Horizons, another try. Although, eh, no, <laughs> I really don't think I'm going to like it again. No, no. It would be good. it would be good. I I can't articulate why some people like that better than the others. But but anyway, to get back to your question. Um, <laughs> this entire episode notwithstanding, I agree with that point of view that I, I don't think house rules, generally speaking, are a great idea. Just play another game that works as published. Right, right. Well, you know, there's two other things that I wanted to ask you about, Mark, uh, as we're talking about this game, if you don't mind. Uh, we're, we're running a little late, I know, but but I, I want to try and uh, uh, ask you about these two things. Number one, um, can you tell me a little bit what you think about the sort of smaller slim down version i believe it was called like oceana um mm -hmm. that was almost like a um like a like a, a pocket version almost of 
Entecker. Uh, can, can you tell us anything about your thoughts about that? And then secondly, I just wanted to kind of talk to you. I'd, I'd sort of written to you and said uh, when we were discussing the show, you know, I, I wanted to kind of just talk about exploration games in general because they're, they're for me at least, I don't want to speak for everybody, but um, for me and for, for other people that I've talked to, this is a really popular theme in gaming. You know, there, there's a pull in exploration games. There's something that pulls us, I think, as, as not just as gamers, but as people. And so I wanted to just kind of talk about that genre in general. And what about this particular game, Entdecker, really kind of uh, feels authentic and, and uh, gives you that feeling. You know, you described the old Civ games on computer and, um, you know, where you really basically start with like this, this blacked out world around you. And there's like one dude in this one little tiny illuminated area. And as he moves, you start to see more and more stuff, you know. And there's something very... Um, uh, appealing about that, I think, to people in general. So those kind of two things, if if you have a few more minutes that we can chat, uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on. So let's start with Oceana. Sure. So um, like you say, they, uh, in 2004, they came out with another version of the game that was billed as the, the two-player version, although original and Decker and even the, the later edition, you can play with two. Um, so it's more... It's really better described as almost the travel version. Not like it's got little plastic pegs to put things in, but it's just tiny, you know, and it was right. tiny and inexpensive. And it still very much looks like Endecker because you, you're playing the tiles and you're fill, uh, doing islands. Um, it's pretty neat. It's um, uh, And it's it's much shorter. It is just for two players. There is this sort of solo uh, variant slash game built in like we see more of these days where you just sort of – see how well you can do, you know, see how many points you can score, that right. kind of thing. Um, that I, that's just sort of a throwaway. I, I mean, it's okay, but it's not great. Um, the two-player game is pretty good. Um, uh, part of its, you know, smaller size and smaller price point means instead of wooden markers, you just get cardboard counters for the tokens, which are a little disappointing. Um, but they're either one, two, or three scouts, and you, and you put them down. It's got a neat little idea that the designer reused later, which is that if you – uh, draw a tile. I've sort of skipped this over in the other uh, uh, game description, but occasionally you draw a tile and it just doesn't fit where you are on the map, where your boat is. And um, in, the, in the original games we've been talking about, you just discard that. Well, in Oceana, that's how you get a face-up tile. So it's a good thing, kind of, to get an unplayable tile because it puts a face-up one in front of you to be able to use later, although to use it requires you to sacrifice one of your scout tokens um, uh but even that's not so bad because if you never use it, it's it's worth a, a, a point penalty at the end of the game. Wow, so okay. it's a it's a neat little variant. I I prefer to think of it as sort of the travel version of Ant Decker, and I'm really glad I've got that too. Um, and if I could just quickly run through, really quickly, um, because I don't know that much about them and I don't like them that much. There was another sort of <laughs> expansion. It was meant to be a trilogy. Um, Mark Jackson would be all over me if I didn't talk about these games because he likes them. But there was this uh, supposed to be this sort of Entdecker trilogy um, that was uh, never released in English, but in Reich der Jägoten, in Reich der Wustensona, and in Reich der Damonen. I'm sure I'm butchering those names. But anyway, it's in the realm of the Jade Goddess, in the realm of the Desert Sons, in the realm of the Demons. Well, they never even published the Demon ones, but they did the Jade Goddess Jungly one and the Desert Sons 
deserty one. And in both of these, it's not nautical exploration. You're now you are just doing overland. And in a way that I think publishers like to save money, they figured out, oh, we don't need to publish a board at all. We'll just publish this little cardboard frame or this sort of cross type thing, and then you just place tiles in the middle of it, like you've maybe seen some other games. Right. But um, uh, it has a lot of recognizable Ent Decker stuff. It's you know from the design, same designer at that point, the same publisher, and it was supposed to be in the same family. But they actually played quite a bit differently. And the only thing I'll say about them is that. A huge part of the difference besides the sort of setting, theming, is that everyone has their own little explorer piece that is able to go wherever it wants to go on the map and explore that way. So in play, we end up sort of going our own separate areas, in my experience. And it ends up being – it's kind of an interesting sort of game design question. It ends up being a little tiny – what feels like a little tiny tweak in the design that makes the gameplay – you know, bifurcate in a completely different direction right. than the original game, and in a way that I thought was not so good. It so, almost makes it sound like it's uh, turning it into a little bit of a multiplayer solitaire sort of an affair. Um, if everybody is able to kind of go off on their own, yes? Yeah, maybe a little. Um, like I said, just wait for Mark Jackson to write in and, and explain <laughs> how wrong I am about all this stuff. But, but I'm happy to talk about exploration games in general. So exploration, I think, works great in games and is so compelling because it's just naturally a compelling topic anyway, independent of games. I think, you know, just in history, people exploring the dark continent of Africa or finding the new world or the source of the Mississippi, you know, Lewis and Clark, that sort of thing. It's just naturally interesting. And then it's got the incredible added feature that it works pretty well for games. It's a, it's a subject that can be uh, represented pretty easily and pretty effectively in games kind of like the way military conflicts are pretty easy to do, or sports games are sometimes pretty easy to do. But there's lots of other things in human experience that are really, frankly, difficult to do. I mean, the plot of a romance novel, you know, or even just any sort of novel that's about human interaction can be really compelling, but try making a board game out of it, it's going to be probably a disaster. No one's figured out how to crack that um, problem yet. (laughs) But some other things, such as exploration games, work really well. So, um, and I must not be the only person who thinks that's just a really cool topic because of how often you see it in games. Now, I would say that, you know, when I described Entdecker about how I, I was looking for games that feel like you would explore the map and discover the map and open the map up, and it's the best game for me. There are others, you know, that do this same sort of thing, but for me, it's the best game that does that. But it still feels to me like far from the ideal. I mean, frankly, even that little old computer game Civ that I was playing with sending little galleys out into the uh, parts unknown was was even better in that regard. I just haven't seen it done ideally in a board game format. But, you know, there are always attempts, and I'm always eager to look at when those things come out. There's a lot of games that are called exploration-themed, and, and they probably really are, but exploration itself is really a pretty really open-ended, broad topic. I mean, people can even get pretty abstract in their ideas of what exploration is. I am really trying to limit myself to thinking about sort of geographic exploration, expanding the map. And like you say, like in the eclipse, that absolutely happens. You know, you get to put those tiles down. Now, and you can't even say it's an insignificant part of the eclipse, but it's one one part of a larger game, and it's not like you're going to lay down 30 tiles and you know, and, and really build the map. You lay a few, you know, a handful right. of those, and so 
it's 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 um it's not hugely about that. And some other games, even Ed Decker to an extent, but certainly games like Forbidden Desert, it's like okay, well you basically kind of know the map, you just don't quite know what fills it in. You just, but you know the boundaries and you know where those things are. And that's why Carcassonne actually does an awfully good job of doing this sort of thing. You know, I, and there have been a few sort of nautical themed versions of Carcassonne. And I've looked at those, like Carcassonne, the New World, even has that sort of east to west expansion kind of thing going on in it. Right. Um, uh, I didn't think that was ideal either. And then there's other games that are explicitly ab- about the age of navigation, you know, and you've got Portuguese or Spanish themed boats going around the world and the Horn of Africa and everything. But oftentimes they'll show the whole world and you're maybe establishing a route and setting up a, a market in this distant part of the world. And so that to me is. That's an economic well, game, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's exploration in the sense that you're opening up new parts of the world, but 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 they show you the whole map and you see it right there, and you just, you just don't know on which turn and which player is going to get in there and and score something. That's not what I really what I'm after. Right, right. You know, it's interesting because um, I think you actually hit the nail on the head, which is the the predefined borders are a bit of a problem because. The nature of exploration, as you said, is it has to be kind of open-ended. And so I think this is why, you know, maybe you're feeling like Entecker and other games like that are not a perfect solution. And Carcassonne has something going for it because there are no predefined borders in Carcassonne unless you're playing the absolutely horrible Carcassonne the Castle. Um hmm. But you know that there that that free form, that free flow of Kark, where you know I've had boards that you know almost end up like a perfect square. I've had some that are this weird, long, you know, kind of twisty, river-shaped looking thing, and um, it, it is. It's a very organic thing, you know. And 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 exploration, I think, if a game is trying to capture it, I think that's why you and I both are sort of drawn to the computer version because see the computer. You know, you have the boundaries set by your screen, but the the, uh, the there are no real hard or fast limits that I remember on where you can go. You know, if I want to keep going north, I can go north for a long, long, long time. Whereas yeah. when you when you play a board game, you know, like Mage Knight or or you know something of that nature, you are exploring. You know, you, you play Eclipse, you are exploring. But there's a predetermined limit. You know, there's that, that, that here there be dragons kind of thing where it's like, okay, you, you can't go any further than that. And so, you know, eventually you're going to kind of have explored that whole space. And I think that games that don't really have that sort of predefined boundary um, often feel to me the most exciting because I, I really do feel that there are no limits in, in some ways. Now, I mean, I know there, there certainly are, but um, from, from a sort of uh, uh, the, the way I connect to the game uh, emotionally, I feel much more of that sense of wonder and exploration when I don't have like a frame you know, around it saying, okay, well, this, this is as far as you can go. Um, would you agree with any of that, or do you think I'm making too much of that, that uh, connection there? No, I think that that's right. I, I think it's okay to have limits, but they need to be like way out there. I mean, I think even, you know, Columbus and Francis Drake and all those sorts of guys, you know, had a sense of where the North Pole and the South Pole. I mean, they knew there's some boundaries somewhere. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. But on the scale of their exploration, they were way, way out there. 
they weren't two tiles away. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, all of these exploration games, including Entdecker, are for me very interesting and compelling because of that exploration factor, that that idea of finding something new. And, you know, someone like you and your line of work, you know, you're you're still getting to experience that kind of thrill of exploration, uh, you know, when, when you're working, you know, with things in like the space program. And um, but but for those of us, you know, kind of in a, a, a normal kind of a, I don't want to say normal because that sounds insulting, <laughs> but in a more mundane. How's that? A more mundane kind of field. um there's there's not a whole lot left to explore you know there's there's not a whole lot of uh, in this day and age of gps unless you're looking for a downed malaysian plane there really doesn't appear to be anything mm. that you can't find anymore i mean everything's on the map everything's got a satellite image everything you know, I can find my house. I can find everything. You know, I think, but Dick Cheney's house. Um, you know, on a, on a Google satellite image, and so it, it it's a, a part of that is gone. And I think there's a part of me, at least, that recognizes that that's kind of gone. You know, there there was a time when, you know, uh, especially for for males, you know, like a man went off exploring somewhere, adventuring. That was part of becoming a man. You know, you actually went out and you were supposed to go to some crazy, wild, far off place and hack your way through a jungle with a machete or do something and then come back and, you know, live to tell stories about it in the club and harumph about it, you know, and <laughs> that's like gone now, Mark. I, I don't I don't know that that's necessarily around anymore. And I think maybe because we don't really get to experience that in real life, we really are drawn to it in a, in a game sort of narrative setting. Um, and, and maybe I'm just waxing too nostalgic or, or badly poetic about it, but uh, that's at least kind of my feelings about it. I think that that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy exploration games because it's something I'm not likely to get a chance to do. Um, that's a bit of a downer, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I think there's lots of things that are, that we don't get to do on our personal lives or certainly are from a bygone era. And so it's really kind of cool to see them come to life in a board game format. And this is one of those things. You know, you mentioned that uh, uh, exploration going harumph back at the uh, Gentleman's Club. I mean, I'm playing a game <laughs> right now that is is that game. I mean, there's this old game, Source of the Nile from Avalon Hill. Uh -huh. Yet another version of one of those things where Avalon Hill picked up a good game that someone else had designed. It's really dated. And someone, you know, when, when people think, uh, there really aren't that many good games to pull from the back catalog and reissue, you know, like when they did Merchant of Venus just a little while ago. This is one of those games. Someone needs to pull up Source of the Nile, and uh, like I was talking about Euro Rails earlier, give it a <laughs> give it a 21st century uh, development so that it you know fits our our modern play sensibilities and do it because it's really cool. I mean, you uh, you have this map of Africa, uh, and although the borders of Africa are known, the entire interior is unknown and then you start exploring and you a little like your rails you start drawing on the map actually with stuff oh no well find, that's a... find where the mountains are find where the rivers are and uh find where the uh you know king solomon's mines right, you know, right. auto type things are it's a really cool thing it's got data mechanics but the sense of exploration is fantastic it's a really cool game 
well like thanks for thanks for that recommendation i may have to look that one up because i i have heard of it certainly but i never had the chance uh you know to play that and if it's got that feeling of exploration that we're talking about it sounds like uh, that would be a, a blast to play so yeah well mark and, and let me I'm tell you sorry. one more thing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. go ahead all these exploration ideas of mine um i think undersea exploration Oh, would be yeah, another yeah. perfect feat. Doesn't that sound exciting? Yes, so it is. There was is, a yeah. game a while back, Nautilus, that came out. It wasn't that good. Um, <laughs> it's a good first try, but no one has done the good undersea exploration game. And that's an area where Google Maps doesn't cover for you. So no, it still, doesn't. Yeah. There's still some things to look forward to there. You're you're absolutely right about that. There's uh, there's a whole lot of the ocean that uh, we, we don't know and, and we haven't even seen yet. There's things living down there that haven't been cataloged yet. So, yeah, oh, you're no. right. There's there's a... There, there's a great amount down there that, and that would make it for a very uh, interesting game. So maybe someone will take up that gauntlet someday. I hope so, uh, because I'd be all over that. Well, Mark, I want to thank you very much for uh, agreeing to be on the show tonight and, and sharing your thoughts about Entecker and all of the sort of you know sister and cousin games and tracing the lineage of uh, uh, of this this really kind of maybe overlooked title. And uh, I've, I've particularly enjoyed our conversation as well about uh, exploration games. So thanks for being on the show. Oh, cool! Thanks for having me, and it's it's really been a treat to be on someone else's podcast and uh, see how they do things. You, you do a great job here. I'm happy to be on. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. That means a lot coming from uh, someone like you who's been doing this for such a long time. And uh, it's been a, a, a pleasure to have you on. And maybe I can talk you into coming on another day, uh, talk about another one of your favorite games. And uh, I, I look forward to being able to talk with you in the future. So thanks again. Thanks. That'd be great, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Now it's time for a new game review. Join us for a quick look here on The Long View. So today I have a couple of titles uh, that I'd like to talk with you about today. Uh, the first one that I'd like to talk about is a game from Victory Point Games uh, called Habsburg Eclipse. Uh, this is one of their uh, State of Siege games, I believe. This is a single-player game. Uh, this is a game that was sent to me uh, for the uh, purposes of doing a review, so I want to get that out there right away uh, so that people uh, understand that this was a review copy. Um, I asked for the game, though, specifically because I'm very interested in history in general, and in this particular period of history, uh, right uh, in the World War I period, uh, also very interested in the interwar period uh, between World War I and World War II, um, and of course, you know, the history of World War II as well. But the First World War is not really a, a time period that I think has been mined too deeply uh, when it comes to board games, certainly uh, not compared with World War II. Um, you know, we have uh, some great games like uh, Grand Illusion. Uh, we have uh, games like Paths of Glory and things uh, of that nature, but uh, not uh, a ton. And so when I took a look at this game, especially since it was a solo game, and I don't really have the opportunity to play too many war games, uh, I thought, oh, okay, you know, this, this is one I'm definitely interested in. It's a period I'm interested in as well. So um, this is a game that is a sister game for a game called Ottoman Sunset. 
Now, that's not one that I have had the chance to play yet, uh, although I'm hoping to maybe have the chance to, to check that out in the future. Um, Ottoman Sunset is uh, another one uh, set in the same period. It's a solo uh, player game, but uh, these two games apparently can be combined so that you could have a two-player game. And uh, really, this kind of idea of States of Siege is, is a fantastic kind of mindset to have when you're looking at a game like Habsburg Eclipse. Uh, the only other game that I've ever played that really gives me the same feeling as this is uh, the Martin Wallace title, God's Playground. Uh, in God's Playground, you know, you are a tiny little Poland trying to defend yourself from seemingly everybody, as everybody tries to swoop in and, and beat you uh, about the head and shoulders and take all your stuff. And um, it's just a constant pressure relentless pressure as you try to survive, really, in, in God's Playground, uh, you know, beating everybody off with a stick while you're trying to uh, develop your own estates and uh, uh, build up your country and, and whatnot. So um, this game feels very similar to me in that you are uh, the Habsburg Empire, and you are desperately trying uh, to maintain your empire, not have it dissolve around you uh, as we move into and through the events of the First World War. So one of the things that's very interesting to me about this game is um, the, the game board sort of depicts these uh, sort of tracks that are leading into the heart of uh, of, of uh, you know the the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and so there's a track coming in from Poland. There's a track uh, coming in from uh, Italy, and there's the, so you're kind of beset from all sides, just as you are in uh, God's Playground. And uh, there's sort of this inexorable march of your enemies trying to come in and uh, take over. And if any of your enemies ever reach uh, your capital, you're done. You're toast. The game is lost. And so what's going to happen is you're going to be trying to put out a lot of different fires. And through the mechanisms of the game, you're going to be trying to sort of hold everybody at bay uh, long enough so that you can actually survive. Your goal in Habsburg Eclipse is to survive, because that was really historically the, the sort of the Habsburg's sort of only motivation is to try to survive. They had uh, already made sort of a grand compromise in, in uh, establishing the dual monarchy in order to survive. Uh, certainly not what I think, uh, you know, they would have thought was a ideal situation, but it allowed them to continue and move forward. So um, you really are just trying to kind of hold on. And, and Ottoman Sunset, as my understanding, is, is exactly the same way because, of course, uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire was in serious decline at this time. Uh, if I'm remembering my history right, it was, you know, kind of referred to as the, the sick old man um, that was on, you know, his last legs and people were kind of eyeing up that territory as well, thinking, hmm, you know, I wonder if I could grab a piece of that. So, um, these games um, are really designed to give a player that sort of immersive feeling. So the main engine of the game is, is that there is a deck of cards. And this deck of cards is kind of uh, divided into three different sort of sections, um, almost Twilight Struggle-ish, where you have like sort of early cards, mid cards, and late cards. And uh, these cards are going to be flipped up once per turn, and they're going to do a few different things. Um, the first thing that's going to happen is that there's going to be an event, perhaps, that's going to be revealed. And that event uh, could be something that's going to modify your actions for that turn, um, something that's going to make things maybe a little more difficult, as if you needed that, uh, or perhaps 
perhaps it, it's going to be some sort of a battle, some sort of a historic battle that's going to take place. And this is all abstracted through the, the use of these sort of counters that you're going to have off to the side of the board. And uh, you're going to fight these battles. And you're going to roll some dice. And you may have some modifiers based on previous cards, uh, such as the German aid card, where you're going to be able to add to your dice totals. Uh, you may have a, a famous leader that you're going to be able to throw into the mix who might be able to help you. Um, but basically, you're going to uh, then roll some dice. And you're going to see whether or not this is a battle that you won. If you won the battle, you're going to place uh, the token for the battle in the uh, victory box. If you uh, lost the battle, you're going to put it in a different one. And if it was a stalemate, you're going to put it in uh, yet a third one. Um, and then you're going to get to do some actions usually, and your action points are going to allow you to do a few different things. They're going to allow you to either try to beat back your enemies who may be encroaching on your borders. They're going to allow you to improve uh, the historic fortress whose name I will not even try to pronounce because I'm sure I would butcher it. Um, that was uh, a kind of, I, I'm thinking in the sort of Carpathian Mountains as, as you're uh, crossing over there uh, on the border. And so you have uh, that that you can try to kind of beef up if it's been um, uh, reduced at all by the enemy who are kind of uh, trying to cross through uh, and beyond that fortress on the way to your capital city. Um, there's also things that you can do to try to improve the morale and the loyalty of the people who were part of the Habsburg Empire. And that's a whole nother area of the game that I haven't even had a chance to talk about yet. That's a really fascinating mechanism. So your empire is made up of these different ethnic um, uh, groups uh, who are, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of fabric of the Habsburg Empire at this time. So you have the uh, Czechs, who are part of your empire, uh, you have the Croats, and you have the Hungarians, okay? So the Croatians, the Czechs, and the Hungarians are sort of the, the, the three national groups that are going to be part uh, and parcel of this game, because each of them has sort of like a loyalty track. And so there are events in the game that can take place, uh, and uh, effects of cards that are flipped up that will tell you to test their loyalty. And the way you do that is, is again, you're going to be rolling some dice. Uh, each of these ethnic groups is a little more or less likely than the other to remain loyal. So for example, uh, you know, obviously the, uh, um, the Hungarians are going to be the most likely to want to stick around and stick with you, uh, whereas uh, the, the Czechoslovakians and the, and the Croatians are, are, are much less interested, though they can be persuaded. So if their sort of loyalty is tested, you're going to roll a die. And as long as you equal or exceed that number uh, that is uh, printed as sort of their base loyalty, then you're going to be fine. Um, if, however, uh, you fail that role, then they're going to move towards rebellion. And if you ever have all three of your ethnic uh, groups in rebellion at the same time, you're going to lose the game, regardless of whether or not any armies actually ever reach the capital. Uh, so that's a really interesting kind of dynamic as well, because it can get away from you. It can be something that you're kind of not all that worried about until suddenly you are. So this is a really interesting dynamic for me, uh, is trying to manage uh, these and, and try to keep them out of revolt. Because if any of them go into revolt, then that also has some rather nasty in-game effects that will um, you know, hamper your ability to hold your uh, enemies at bay. Uh, you know, It's almost as if they're kind of stepping out of the way as the foreigners are, are marching into your country. 
and attempting to take over, you know, your empire. So um, that's really well represented, very abstract, but very um, doable, very playable. Um, so that's really interesting. And then you also have a, a sort of third element that you have to really consider, which is called your national will. And this is sort of just the, the will of the people to continue this fight. And this is where those battles come into play. Uh, when you gain victories, that's going to increase your national will. People are going to be, you know, rather inspired and maybe filled with nationalistic fervor as they go, oh, you know, we won, we won. Um, defeats, however, are going to have the opposite effect. It's going to pull your national will down as the casualties pile up, etc., um, you know, and, and people are beginning to feel defeated or, or feel that the end is near or, in, or inevitable. So your national will can also dip to a point um, where you are actually going to uh, lose the war uh, basically through surrender which is, um, you know, another way in which the game can end. So this is really interesting because um, national will is determined by your sort of wins and losses, your record uh, in the war, but it's also determined by how far your enemy has encroached into your country. Uh, there are certain positions on the board um, that are marked, and for every one of those positions that has been passed, they're marked with flags, uh, you're going to actually lose national will. So it's a very, again, a bit of a balancing act between trying to decide, okay, am I worried about, uh, you know, rebellion within my country? Am I worried about enemies from without the country? How much do I focus on these battles? Um, when do I use the sort of die roll modifier uh, chits that I can gain, whether they're German aid or whether they're leader chits or, or what have you? You know, what? when do I use my resources? Because you have to kind of survive through the entire deck if you're going to win the game. Now, I have played this game probably about seven or eight times, um, and, and I'm going to circle back to that in a moment, and I think I've won only a, uh, twice, I think, I've won. The rest of the time, I've lost. So the game is challenging. It's not quite as easy as you might think it is. Um, it gets a little bit easier with experience as you sort of learn the deck, you learn the cards that are uh, possibly going to be coming out, and approximately when they're going to be coming out is, of course, very useful. But, you know, there are still uh, die rolls in this game, and sometimes you can just have an unlucky game. So uh, before I move on to kind of that, I want to talk a little bit about the components in the game. Uh, Habsburg Eclipse is a new sort of line of games in Victory Point. I talked a little bit about this in Circus Train, so I'm not going to wax on and on about it. But I will say that I think the components are very nice in this game. Uh, it has a sort of a puzzle cut board that you put together, uh, but it also includes a paper board. So if you're not a big fan of the, the puzzle cut board, you can get that nice thick cardstock folded board, lay that out, put a piece of uh, uh, plexi over it, and, and you're good to go. So I think it's nice that they give you both of those options. Uh, the counters are, you know, nice and thick. They are the laser cut. They, you get that little powder that you got to clean off, but no big deal. Um, the cardstock I really like. Uh, they're thin, um, but they're not flimsy. You know, they they don't fray. They're they're very flexible, easy to shuffle. Um, I, I think they're laid out graphically very well as far as everything is very easy to spot on the cards. So the components to me are uh, a big plus. I'm not a huge fan of the dice that are included with the game. Uh, they are sure a step up from the old Victory Point games where I think they use the most microscopic dice that I've ever seen. But um, 
I, I kind of like a, a little chunkier kind of a die in my game. That's just my preference. Maybe because I have large hands and, and the little dice don't feel real uh, substantial in my hand. I like something a little bit larger when I'm rolling. So, But that's just a personal preference. There's certainly nothing wrong with the dice that are included in the game. Uh, the rulebook is very clear, uh, laid out very well uh, in a typical kind of a war game fashion. Um, but there really hasn't been a situation that's arised that I haven't been able to find in the rulebook. So I have to give kudos to the rulebook. Uh, I would say complexity-wise, the game is uh, relatively easy to learn and easy to play. And one of the things that I love about this game is that it is very quick to set up. I mean, once you sort of have everything punched and you've played through it once and you sort of understand what counters are sort of to go in what pile, I can have this game set up in, in a space of about two, three minutes and start playing. And so for me, it's a perfect solo game that I can play on a night when perhaps my wife's going to bed early because she's got work the next day, um, you know, early in the morning. And so it's like, hmm, I'm not really tired yet. What can I do? Ah, I'll play Habsburg Eclipse. So um, I find the game to be very challenging. I find the game to uh, do a really good job at, at making you feel the pressure of this sort of uh, um, being attacked from all sides. I like some of the historic flair that's been put into the game. Um, you know, there's major rivers that need to be crossed uh, by the Italian forces coming in, and uh, it's difficult for them, and it's also difficult for you to deal with. Um, there are trench lines that can be dug in the south that will really stop your enemy in their tracks for a good portion of the game if you're able to get that done. Um, there's all kinds of nice little pieces and parts that have been put into this. Uh, very well thought out. And I find it to be a very enjoyable game to play. Um, and so I would have to give Habsburg Eclipse uh, a big thumbs up. Um, I, I really enjoy this game and, and think that it's one I'm going to keep in my collection for quite some time. And I think it's one that I'm going to try and... Uh, uh, see if I can grab myself a copy of Ottoman Sunset and maybe try it as a two-player with my wife and see uh, how that goes, because I think that would be a, a very interesting thing to try as well. So um, if anyone out there has played Ottoman Sunset and Habsburg Eclipse together, I think I did see one geekless posting about it. Uh, I would be really curious if any listeners have tried that, what your impressions have been of it. So uh, that's my quick look at the game of Habsburg Eclipse. <laughs> Next one on the list is a game that uh, I picked up uh, just recently. It's called Arctic Scavengers. Now, this is a game that uh, I had seen in my, my friendly local game store. Uh, they had like a single copy on their shelf for, God, like the past like eight months. They, they just kind of sat there and uh, stared at me. And I had heard some kind of negative reviews about it, um, you know, people who kind of uh, gave it that sort of very meh kind of a review, and so, you know, I looked at it a couple of times, but I never pulled the trigger on it, um, and I thought, you know, eh, whatever, um, and then I'd say about two weeks ago, I saw a video from the uh, Shut Up and Sit Down guys, and, and I always enjoy their videos, I find them to be uh, pretty funny, um, I, I enjoy their, their reviews, I enjoy their style, uh, I enjoy their sense of humor, um, and so when I saw that they had done a video about this, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I'll check it out. Those guys are always fun to watch. And, uh, you know, he did an amazing job of convincing me that this is a game that I needed to look at. So uh, if you haven't seen that video, I would definitely suggest going and checking out uh, the Shut Up and Sit Down video for Arctic Scavengers. Um, but uh, what I would like to do is tell you about what my experience was. So I picked up the game. 
and brought it home and, and uh, checked through the rules. And it was quite simple. It, it really wasn't uh, anything difficult to pick up. Uh, very straightforward kind of a thing. Uh, in the game, you are kind of representing a, a band of survivors uh, after a sort of post-apocalyptic sort of uh, a period of climate change and, uh, to me, an implication of war. Uh, and pretty much everything is a wasteland at this point and, and a snowy kind of Arctic landscape. So um, you are representing a, a band of survivors um, you know, and you're trying to attract other people uh, to come and join your group so that you have a better chance of survival. So you start off with just a few kind of lonely refugees. You have a shovel, <laughs> you have a spear, uh, you have one, you know, guy who's a brawler, you know, who's kind of your your uh, uh, your guy who's really good at fighting and, uh, you know, a little more aggressive. And um, you, you just start off with this very uh, small band of scavengers. And so what you're going to do in the game is you're going to to, uh, as usual, you have a deck of cards, you're going to draw a hand of cards, and then you're going to play them. And you're going to play them, um, you know, in any kind of combinations that you wish, and then you can take as many actions as you wish, um, as long as you're not duplicating the same action. So your choices in this game are you can uh, play cards that will, uh, some of them will allow you to draw more cards. So if you've got some useless refugees in your hand, uh, they don't really do anything for you except kind of hang around and, and uh, you need to provide for them, then, you know, you could play a card that would allow you to uh, draw a new card and hopefully get something better. Uh, scavengers or, or scouts are the kinds of cards that will allow you to do that. Okay, great. So you draw some more cards and hopefully you get something useful. Um, that's one ability. The other ability you can do is you can uh, send people out to go and gather food. Um, so you can send someone out to go and grab food, say a scavenger, go out and, and search through the frozen landscape, see if he can find some old tin cans of tuna or something. Um, or you can send him out with a spear and uh, that's going to make him more effective and maybe he can actually go out and get some live games somewhere and bring it back to you know your huddled group uh, you know, trying to survive. So you can give them a spear. Um, you could send people out to go to this, the junkyard, right? And this is one of the unique parts of, our, of Arctic Scavengers is there's two sort of shared decks. There's two common decks that you're going to use. One of them is called the Contested Resources deck and the other one is called the Junkyard. So you can go to the junkyard and you can dig around and you might find something useful. You might find a, another shovel. You could find a, a pickaxe. You could find, um, you know, something like pills or medicine or something like that. And I love that because it's very thematic. You know, you, you have this idea of, uh, you know, nothing would attract people to come and, and hang out with you more than you having medicine. Uh, you know, this would be something that would be really necessary and needed in this sort of post-apocalyptic future. So uh, this is one of the things that you can do in the game is you can go to the junkyard and you can dig uh, trying to find some tools or trying to find some medicine or something that's going to help you later in the game. So another action that you can do is uh, you can save some of your cards so that you can use them later for the contested resources phase. This is kind of like their fight value. Um, and this is a really interesting part of the game and something that I haven't really seen done before, which I really like. So you have your hand of cards and you can play them and you can actually boost the power of those cards. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But one of the things you can do is you can hold cards back in your hand for this contested 
resource phase. Um, if you remember, I said there were two sort of central decks. So you have this junkyard that's in the middle that everybody is kind of uh, madly scrambling through trying to find some useful stuff. Um, but then you also have the contested resources deck. And this is actually the timer of the game. Now, uh, for some reason, the uh, box insert says there's 20 of them, uh, but uh, the uh, rule book actually says there's 14 of them. So I'm assuming that 14 is the correct number. And that's also the number of cards that I got. So 14. So basically, it's the timer. There's going to be 14 rounds in the game. And the first person, uh, called the initiator every turn, is going to have the ability to flip over that top card and take a peek at what it is. And basically, this is going to be a, a really powerful card, usually. It's going to be something uh, you know very useful to you. Uh, it might be a, a, a wolf pack or a dog sled team. You know That's going to really help you go out there when you're looking for food or scouting ahead and things of that nature. Um, and, or it might be uh, you know uh, something that, that's going to be uh, really useful to you uh, for gathering food food. Uh, it could be something for combat, like a grenade, uh, always useful. Um, so there, there's these contested resources, and the first person's going to get a chance to peek at that. And then when they're done playing their turn, they're going to declare a number of cards that they're going to keep for the skirmish. It's called the skirmish, and this is for the contested resource, whatever that is. Now, nobody else knows what it is, um, but the start player is going to then hold some cards back, and they can hold back really good cards, or they could hold back a bunch of refugees that basically don't do much for you. You don't really know. And so that adds to some kind of bluffing and, and some, some mystery there, right? Uh, every player then will take their turn playing as many cards as they want and boosting the power of their cards. And I promise I'll get back to that in a moment. And then when they're done, uh, everybody's going to reveal their cards. And you're going to add up the combat value of all the cards. And whoever has the highest combat value is going to win that contested resource card. So you might hold back a lot of cards in your hand um, because you really want that card, or you could hold back cards in your hand, say, uh, two, you know, two refugees and a shovel, uh, because you really didn't want that card, but you didn't really want to do anything else with those cards, and you kind of are forcing everybody else to think, oh, wow, you know, she's holding three cards in her hand. This must be pretty good. So your opponents end up taking these shortened turns and saving all these cards for the skirmish, and it turns out it's not that great of a card under there anyway. So you're able to kind of influence the other players that way, which I really like. Um, if there's a tie for contested resources, then you're going to have uh, a look at the population. And this is something I haven't talked about yet, but it's very, very important. Every card at the bottom, in general, has a population number at the bottom. And um, the population number might be anywhere from one to, I think, five, I think is the largest that I've seen. And what that represents is the number of people who are in that group of refugees, or that group of scavengers, or group of brawlers, or whatever. Uh, you can abstract that in any way you want. You can say it's you know one person, five people, or you could say it's, you know, 100 or 50 or, you know, whatever. There's no real um, hard set number, but it's, it, it, it is a, a value that you're going to look at. And if there's a tie, you're going to add up the population numbers. So this is where those refugees can actually come in handy. So they don't offer anything to the fight, but they do offer population. And so a refugee can often end up tipping a skirmish phase in one player's favor or another if it ends up being a tie. So another interesting kind of dynamic. Also, I really have to mention that the goal of the game at the end is to have the highest population. So in a really interesting way, you have this push and pull of, you know, I want to get these cards. I want to get cards that are useful to me. However, 
if I get rid of population, um, or, or if I don't get enough population, it doesn't matter how awesome my deck is, how many uh, great people I've attracted to come and, and be with my survival group, it's not going to matter worth a hill of beans because I don't have the population that I need to win the game. So there's a nice kind of dynamic there. Um, so population is how you're going to win the game at the end. But during the game, they can often be a burden to you. So it almost feels like victory point cards in Dominion. You know, it's great to get them, but they kind of choke your hand. However, this game offers something new that I really like. If you remember, I told you refugees don't really do much for you. They're kind of, they're population, but they can't do anything. However, cards can have other cards attached to them for your turn. So for example, a refugee does nothing for me, but if I give him a shovel, he can go out and dig in the junkyard and get me a card. If I send him out with a spear, he can go get me some food. So he's kind of useful after all, okay? So there, there is something that those refugees uh, might be able to do. Now, a refugee's not going to go and fight for me. I can't give him a spear and, and tell him to go and, and fight a bunch of brawlers from uh, another survival uh, group. But uh, he, he will go out and he'll hunt for me and he will go out and, and uh, you know, he'll, he'll go pick through the junkyard for me if I want. So there are cards that you can attach to other cards. The grenade I mentioned earlier, you can give a grenade to a brawler and now, boy, you've got a lot of fight value there uh, that's going to be really useful to you. You can give anything to a scavenger. You can give a scavenger a tool for a weapon. Um, you can give him a tool to go dig in the junkyard. You can give him just about anything that you want. One of the cool things about the game, though, is that each person, no matter how much population they represent, each card can only be equipped with one item. So, um, if you have a skirmish phase and you have three spears in your hand, it does you absolutely no good because no one's carrying them. Uh, by the same token, uh, you know, you might have a brawler and a grenade and a spear, but that brawler can only pick from either the spear or the grenade. So there's, there's a nice little, uh, sort of a balancing act there as well that I really like, you know, you can't just load up with items because you'll have nobody to use them. So that's kind of interesting. So that's kind of how the skirmish phase works. You're going to do that 14 times, and then you're going to sort of look through your deck and see who won via population. Now, one of the other things you can do is, just like any other deck builder, is you can get new cards. You can uh, They call it recruiting mercenaries. I don't like that. I kind of like to think of it as, as uh, attracting uh, other people to your group, you know, uh, to, to come and hang out with you. Uh, and one of the reasons I like that thematically is because it's, that, it's this idea of uh, everybody, all those cards, they want either food or they want medicine or they want some combination of both. And so if you uh, have enough food and medicine that you can play out of your hand, uh, then you're going to be able to attract those cards. You're going to be able to, to bring them to you, and they're going to they're going to join your cause, right? So I kind of like this idea. Um, they are called mercenary cards, though, and you're hiring mercenaries in game terms. But uh, I, I kind of uh, more immersed in the theme, maybe myself, and I kind of think of it more like you know, hey, who are you going to go with? You're going to go with her. Uh, pff, she doesn't have any food at all. You know, look at me. I got a med kit. You know, I got a med kit and some chicken over here. Come on over. You know, <laughs> okay, I'm all over that. So you're, you're kind of attracting people to come to you. And the different types of cards that can come are all going to do something different for you. They're all kind of more specialized. So for example, uh, the scout is going to be great at hunting, and the scout is going to be great at allowing you to draw more cards during your turn. Um, and, you know, she, she's a little useful in a fight, but she's not really interested in going and digging in the junkyard. If you give her a shovel, she'll go and she'll check it out, but it's not really what she's made for. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, you might also have a group of thugs, and, and they're kind of really 
really not good for anything except for fighting. Or you might hire yourself a sniper team. Uh, the sniper team is, is really interesting because you can use a sniper team during that skirmish phase and you can actually take out somebody. So let's say that uh, I have revealed a brawler, uh, a refugee with a spear, and a sniper team in that uh, skirmish phase at the end of the round. And uh, looking across the table, my opponent has two thugs. One of them's got a grenade. One of them's got a spear. Um, it's like, oh, you know, okay, they've got me beat. But uh, if I use my sniper team and I knock out one of his brawlers, well, now he has a brawler with a grenade and a spear. Pick one. And that's all you're going to get. So I probably won that round. I was able to snipe somebody. Uh, the snipers can also be used um, during uh, uh, the, the round uh, where you can snipe somebody um, from using a card that they want to use on their turn, which is kind of neat. They're the only card that can be played out of turn. Uh, and then you also have saboteur cards, which are kind of neat, because what they'll do is they'll destroy equipment. They'll, they'll you know, they'll uh, uh, negate the equipment that somebody might have. So, yeah, you still got that brawler, but that grenade, guess what? It's a dud. It doesn't work, all right? So there's some interesting uh, cards that can be added that will uh, affect that skirmish phase, which I really like. Um, and then there are other cards that are kind of just upgrades of the others. You have group leaders. Uh, group leaders are kind of neat because they're just going to add uh, pluses to kind of everything that you do. So they're going to boost your ability. And that's the last thing uh, to talk about is this boosting of abilities. So every card that you play, you can boost it. You can boost it with a tool or you can boost it with some group leaders. And boosting basically is going to increase the power of your action. So we've already talked about how uh, a grenade is going to boost your combat and a spear is going to boost your hunting or your combat. But then you also can play cards. If I play three scavengers together and send them to draw cards, instead of just drawing one card, I can draw one, two, three. Uh, or if I go to the junkyard, I can draw one, two, three cards. I still only get to keep one, but I can now look at three. I send those three guys out with a shovel. Now all of a sudden I'm looking at one, two, three, plus two for the shovel. I'm looking at five cards. Still only get to keep one, but I have a much wider variety to choose from. So all of these actions can be boosted, um, which is really neat. And you can do all of these actions on your turn, but you can only do each action once. So if I'm going to do a draw action, I can do it once. If I'm going to go to the uh, junkyard, I can go once. If I'm going to hire somebody, I can do it once. So there are some limits, but it is rather kind of free sort of form, free flow, which I really like. I like all of the different choices that you have there. So for me, I really think Arctic Scavengers is really interesting. And uh, the, the game appears to come built in with an expansion called the Headquarters Expansion, which offers up a whole bunch of new cards that are very interesting and add a lot more variety to the game and a lot more replayability. There's now buildings that you can build. There's a couple of new uh, people that you can try to recruit and bring to your cause. Uh, there, there's just all sorts of other sort of pieces to the puzzle that you can fill in there that just make the game even more interesting or dynamic. So um, to me, Arctic Scavengers has been really quite a surprise. Is it because I had low expectations? Maybe. There might be some something to that. But overall, I have to say that I've played it quite a bit, and everyone that I've introduced it to has really enjoyed it. And so I really think this might be one of those games that unfortunately was overlooked for a long time. I know there were production snafus and whatnot, and the game didn't really get out when it was supposed to come out and uh, things of that nature. Uh, this is one that might be worth checking out. So that's Arctic Scavengers. Well, that's about going to wrap it up for this episode of The Long View. 
So for uh, Mark Johnson and myself, I want to say uh, thanks to, uh, of course, my sponsor, GameSurplus.com. Um, if you're thinking about uh, trying to uh, pick up a copy of uh, a game uh, that's perhaps a hard-to-find import or uh, even the latest, greatest game, GameSurplus.com is a great place to go. Uh, their customer service is fantastic. Um, Thor has tracked down many hard-to-find titles for me and uh, gets them shipped off super fast and at an unbeatable price. So thanks to GameSurplus.com for their support of my show. And uh, if you do decide to order from them, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. I'd also be remiss if I didn't uh, mention the Dice Tower Network. Uh, the Longview is part of the Dice Tower Network, and thanks to them for allowing me to be part of the great podcast family there. So for Mark Johnson and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening, and have a great night.